of the Qarawi podcast. We're very honored to be back with you all and I'm honored to be back with my three co-hosts. I'm here with Aisha A, Aisha H, and Amina. And how are you ladies doing today? Alhamdulillah, really good. I actually just got my second COVID vaccine, so I'm a little Ooh. bit sore in the arm. Oh. Um, so if my notes are all like half jaggedy and I lose track of what I'm saying, I don't blame it on post-vaccine confusion. <laughs> Not that that's a thing, but you know. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely yeah, Allah you speak. Um, yeah, Sarum, good, alhamdulillah. Uh, just nice and happy to be back with, with everybody. Um, I've said this before, but I genuinely do like really enjoy our podcast recordings because yeah. obviously our listeners don't get to see our faces, but I get to see all your faces. So, alhamdulillah, <laughs> it's a good day. And Amina, how are you? Alhamdulillah, I'm well. I had a dentist appointment today, so I didn't know if I was going to make it. But alhamdulillah, I'm here, yeah. ready to talk to all of you. <laughs> That you might sure. like die at the dentist. I was, that's how I feel going no, to the yeah. dentist too. So I was so yeah. worried. I was like, I've got a podcast today. Please don't do anything. <laughs> it's good to be back, and it's good to be talking about you know today's topic, which we are all very passionate about here at the Qarawi Project. Um, and we are recording this episode during the month which is commemorating 100 Hijri years since the abolishment um, of the Ottoman Khilafah of the Islamic Khilafah. Um, this was uh, the official day that it was commemorated was on March 3rd. You may have seen people talking about it or sharing, you know, articles about it. Um, and what's interesting is that today a lot, there are Muslims who commemorate this as a very significant date. Um, and there are other Muslims who are unaware of it, who might think of this as just kind of like, you know, maybe like a very, um, it's like a historical event that's very specific to one time or one place. But when the abolishment of the Khilafah took place, this was actually... Um, a really traumatic event for the entire ummah at that time. Um, and this was something that was significant for all Muslims, even though like at this point, the Ottoman um, Empire was not, you know, its jurisdiction was not as uh, widespread as it, as it once was. They weren't ruling over, you know, majority of the Muslim lands, but it was significant for all Muslims. Um, and we'll talk about that more later, like how, how serious of an event this was for the ummah. Um, but what is interesting is that we see at this point a political leader and a political system that were significant to people who lived outside of the borders of the jurisdiction of that government. Um, and it was significant to people for one reason alone, which was Islam. What we had in common was Islam, and the Khilafah was significant to all Muslims. Um, and then this kind of starts to generate questions about, okay, so what then does it mean for the Ummah to have, you know, like a unified political identity um, or political body that is significant to the whole Ummah? What does Islam have to do with politics? Is there an Islamic government and what does it look like? Um, and that's what we're talking about today, inshallah. Um, but I do want us to start then, you know, with, I think, a really important question, which is what then is the relationship between religion and politics? Um, and particularly from an Islamic standpoint, because even that is disputed, right? That there even mm-hmm. could, like should be a relationship between the two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think this is a good place to start, Sada, as you're saying. And I think to understand Islam's role in politics, we really have to understand, first and foremost, what Islam itself is. And I think that we live, obviously, in an era where religions are, to a great extent, 
just another subject that we study in school. And I think I've said this multiple times on the podcast, but even Sarah, you were saying the other day how you didn't realise the extent to which the UK is secularised until you were reading somebody else's commentary on it. But definitely, you know, growing up in the UK, religion is just a subject you study in school. It's mm. very looked down upon to even mention too much about your religion in public or express that you have religious uh, motivations for certain actions. Definitely when it comes to your belief in, in politics, it shouldn't be that your positions are solely guided by religion. You might have some religious connotations uh, or it might have informed your desire to be merciful or, or compassionate in a humanitarian situation, for example. But otherwise, religion, generally speaking, it, for the in, in the UK context and, and definitely in many other places in the West, is increasingly not even just about personal beliefs, but it's about private beliefs that aren't really even evident in an individual and aren't manifesting in your in your thoughts and actions. And so I think that language here is very important because when we start saying that Islam is a religion, we box it into this understanding of religion and what it's come to mean for us as individuals in society today. But Islam really transcends this understanding. And this is why actually in our tradition, we describe Islam as a deen. And when we look at this word, this is a much broader meaning than religion, even though it's it's often translated as such. Deen is used about 80 times in the Quran in different contexts that vary uh, from it meaning system or way of life or power or sovereignty. So if we're thinking about Islam as a deen, I think really religion is not a word that encapsulates what we mean by that. I think a word that's closer to this definition is worldview. Worldview being an underlying system of thought that ultimately determines how we view the world. This speaks to the idea that Islam cannot be reserved to just one area of our life, our, our you know, the private sphere or certain actions that we deem as worship. Ultimately, as a worldview, it's penetrating all aspects of our life, how we view things, how we as an individual and as a community determine what's right and wrong. And this will obviously include politics. This is why, you know, as, as a deen, it is, we are obviously reliant on, on wahi, uh, divine revelation and the other sources of Islam, which contains guidance not only for our personal individual actions, how to pray, how to fast, how to go on hajj, but also how to get married, roles for social and business organisation, and of course then for political organisation as well. So I think that when we think about Islam in this way, it informs us and gives us more room to start thinking about what does Islam mandate when it comes to politics and political organisation, what does that look like? Yeah, and so that like it gives us a really good definition of deen, right? And the like the Islam side of Islam and politics, um, and it's like you know it's, it sets pretty clearly like the um, the justification for you know you know talking about everything when we say like from an Islamic standpoint. What we're really just saying is like from the standpoint of like you know being truthful, honest, rational people who recognize reality for what it is, reality and the world as being created by God um, and having been placed on this earth to fulfill the command of God. But then there's the politics side of it, which um, I guess there's, a, you know, like a lot, there are things that we can point to and say that's politics. Um, and that's, you know, typically like governments, um, policies, courts, nation states, elections. Um, but I want to also kind of like bring us back to the foundational definition of politics and this is like what you'll hear you know and if you're taking like 
introductory political theory classes they'll say like they'll, they'll ask that question on the first day which is like what is politics and then you get students like you know throwing <laughs> stuff up their hands up and being like well it's you know it's uh, elections and political leadership and government and like it could be either like democracy or monarchy and stuff but really what the like kind of like essence of politics as we understand it today is um the struggle for power and once we understand that then we start to you know start answering then we can start answering questions like okay who is vying for power and why? Because for some human beings, power is an end in and of itself. Uh, for us as Muslims, it obviously is not, but that doesn't mean that it's something that's useless. It's a means, the same way that wealth is a means or that relationships um, and you know, like material belongings are um, a means to a certain end, that end obviously being determined by our deen, by our worldview, um, as Muslims who are going to return to Allah one day. So that, you know, like we should, the same way that we start talking about like, okay, what is the goal of Muslims when it comes to politics? We should be asking that question for all, you know, politicians in all states is like, what is the goal of this political system? Why does it exist? And we should stop taking for granted the political systems that we live under, um, you know, because I think we do like, you know, Muslims growing up in, um, whether it's in the US or the UK, do take for granted the political system that exists um, and just see, you know, just we most of our political discussions are like, OK, how do we participate in it if we should? Um, but I think we should ask the same questions when it comes to like, yeah, these governments, like what are the goals of their existence? Why do they exist? For what purpose? Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to then Islamic governance and asking what are the goals of the Islamic government? This is very clearly delineated in literature about islam and politics is very clearly exemplified by the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um and and abu hassan al-mawardi writes in his book uh, al-ahkam sultaniyah or the rules for islamic governance which is like a canonical you know like islamic politics text um but he states it you know like very clearly which is that um he says that the imamate and here we're using imamate kind of as like synonymous with the islamic leadership or the khilafa or you know the emir the the waliul amr but he says imame is prescribed to succeed prophethood as a means of protecting the deen and of managing the affairs of this world so succeeding prophethood this is you know where we bring the pull it out the concept of khilafa khalafa being you know um, meaning to succeed somebody so in the like yeah following following the the life and the leadership of the prophet himself sallallahu alaihi wasallam somebody else then mm-hmm. takes up that post not as a prophet but as a leader of the community and then there's you know the these twin responsibilities of one protecting the deen and then two managing the affairs of this world and these for us as muslims deen and dunya are not like these completely separate things or even mutually oppositional things it's not that dunya stands in opposition to us practicing our deen but it should be a means for practicing our deen correctly it can become you know a fitna in opposition to our deen if we see the dunya as you know the end but again things in the dunya like wealth or like power should be seen as a means for achieving felicity in the akhirah um and so it's very clear from uh, for you know for us as muslims what the goal of an islamic government would be which is again yeah protecting the deen preserving the deen of muslims and then managing the affairs of this world meaning like you know making sure that people are uh, materially comfortable that you know justice is being served um, that people have enough to eat and you know we don't really need to even go into like you know the like it's very self-explanatory from just looking at the five pillars of islam like that islam does aim to take care of like the material conditions of the people through not just zakat um, but that being like a very explicit example of that I think, you know, mashallah, Aisha, Hij, and Sara, you've you really encapsulated it really beautifully. You know, this, um, the discussion around what 
Islam is, what religion is and what politics is and how they intertwine. And I think, you know, there's no better example of that, of, you know, as far as you were saying, the goal of Islamic politics of, you know, protecting and propagating the deen of Islam and managing the affair of, of you know, worldly affairs of people, um, then in, in the example of the Prophet wasallam, you know, he came and he was, he was more than just a religious spiritual figurehead, you know, he did more than just teach us how to do hajj and perform salah. He was also, you know, as you saw in his life in Medina and, and in the time beyond that, um, where he was a judge and he settled disputes and he was a military leader, you know, he led battles, he organized armies, um, you know, he was a diplomat, he engaged with, with foreign leaders like the Persians and the Byzantines and the Romans and, you know, he was the head of a nation, you know, he was a leader in both a spiritual and political sense. Yeah, so it's due to this multidimensional role of the Prophet being leader in both the spiritual and political sense that I quite appreciate Ibn Khaldun's observations on Islamic political theory. Uh, because in his Muqaddimah, he agrees with the Aristotelian view that you know, man is political by nature, but also that you know, man is a social animal and man has a need for community. And um, this, uh, this socio-political cohesion required to hold these communities together, he refers to as Asabiyya. And you know, he says that rational politics, uh, relying on intellectual reasoning, can form a model of governance capable of addressing general public concerns. However, consider only the temporal dimension of life. Um, does not touch upon spirituality and the metaphysical. So the question then is, uh, with regards to politics and governance, do we require a transcendental dimension to our political order? And essentially this all comes down to what purpose we think we are on earth for. And then the limitations of such a political order are quite clear to us as Muslims. Uh, and why he asserts that Khilafah is the best manifestation of a political community as, you know, as it takes into account both the temporal and eternal interests. And as Muslims, we should always have the Akhira in mind, right? And, you know, it was his desire to restore this aswabiyya of the um, khilafah and, you know, pledge allegiance to a khalif to then obtain Allah's blessings upon society. And, you know, he discussed sacred law beyond just legalistic terms. You know, he highlighted the very divine nature and the spirituality that was woven into it, essentially making it a means of worship. And it's for this reason, personally, that I think we kind of need to look at Islamic politics, let's call it, and mainstream political theory almost as separate entities, because otherwise we try to superimpose them onto the same template. And that is where the limitations and contradictions become very clear. And you know, Islamic politics is rooted in wahi. The language of revelation is our foundation, our basis, our framework. And it will remain this way, inshallah, till the end. And I think only when you understand this can you appreciate the very deep relationship between Islam and politics. Yes, I love the way you put this, Amina, in, in terms of like this being, you know, that we approach this from the language of revelation, um, you know, directly from like the, the command and the message that we received from that we receive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But even if we establish this understanding of deen and politics and, you know, being people who uh, go about life, you know, with the vision that revelation brings us, um, is I think that the terms that we're using like khilafah and caliphate can be either loaded terms or just completely misdefined and misunderstood terms. Mm-hmm. So wh- how do we define khilafah? Yeah, of course. I think definitions are obviously really important before we get further into this discussion. Uh, I mean, linguistically, both At-Tabari and Ibn Kathir both explain that the word khilafa comes from the root word khalafa, which in Arabic means to take someone's place in a particular situation. And we see that khilafa is used with a derivative of this meaning uh, quite early on in the Quran in Surah Baqarah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the angels that he's going to put Adam salam and mankind on earth as vicegerents on earth, as, as, as stewards over the earth. Um, however, when we are talking about this concept of khilafah in the literature of siyasa sharia, 
then we are talking about Khilafah as an Islamic state under the leadership of someone who is essentially a steward of the prophetic leadership. Uh, so I think it's important to note at this point that what we're referring to as well here is political unity, not theological unity. Um, I often see people saying, you know, how are we going to have a khalif when the ummah is so divided? Look at all of the different madhabs, the different sects. Having a khalif does not mandate everybody to follow the exact same creed or the same madhab. Uh, it's also not exclusionary to non-Muslims as well. This is something that history shows that Actually, these madahib were developed under an existing khilafah um, and non-Muslims communities are still in many parts of the Muslim world because they were able to live and practice uh, their religion freely in many cases. Ultimately, when we come to the purpose of khilafah as well, obviously it's the implementation of, of the sharia, right, of Islamic law. But I think we need to kind of interrogate what this means a little bit, because very often when people think about implementation of Sharia law, it's kind of like a boogeyman, right? Probably because of all the negative press that it gets, either in the Muslim world or in non-Muslim countries where people are like, oh my God, creeping Sharia and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and so in many people's minds, when you speak about Sharia law, it's just kind of rote application of this law, which often can seem quite barbaric. People just think of kind of the most extreme punishments. But really, I think when I think about Sharia, it's not about just rote application of the law at all. Really, it's about centering life around divine ethical principles. And in doing so, it ultimately ensures that the rights that people have under Islam the rights that we all talk about, whether it's the rights that women have or the poor or animals or the environment, all of these rights are met. And this is ultimately what it means to fulfill the maqasid, to fulfill the objectives of the sharia. And I think that this is actually reiterated in the quote that you were sharing earlier, Sara, of uh, al-Mawardi, where he mentions that the, the functions of the imam uh, are to protect the deen and manage the affairs of the ummah. This is echoed in another hadith of Muhammad وسلم, as well, where he talks about the imam being a shield behind whom you fight and you protect yourself. So this is not about just being authoritarian or, or controlling people. This is actually for people's benefit. This is what scholars, this is what Muhammad وسلم, are talking about when they talk about the implementation of sharia. This is about facilitating Islam's justice by implementing divine prescriptions on how to organize life. And when we think about it in this way, I feel like the Sharia overall takes on a much more positive hue. And this is definitely as well, we can say then, the polar opposite to what we see from groups like ISIS, for example. So the Siyasa Sharia literature as well that we have does go into a lot more detail about what um, you know are the conditions for Islamic leadership, the conditions of a khilafah. Uh, obviously, we don't have time to go into all of them today, but in brief, it's about the authority and security belonging to the Muslims and to the Muslim leader. It's about upholding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sovereignty as, as, as the lawmaker, as the legislator above all else. There are also certain conditions for a kharif, some of which are you know debated, but generally, obviously, the, the ones that are agreed upon by most scholars is that it should be someone who's who's a male he should be as well of Qurayshi lineage uh, many people say although I believe that the in the Hanafi position it's it's not the case because obviously the Ottomans were not um, directly descended from Muhammad Sallallahu uh, he should be somebody who is pious and brave and there's several other qualities that are um, that it's recommended that he should have in terms of as well processes of 
election. Within the Sunnah of Muhammad we have this concept of the Bay'ah, the Pledge of Allegiance. This is obviously how Muhammad rose to power in, in Medina. It was at the Pledge of Aqaba, both times, the first and the second, when groups of people from Medina accepted Islam and they essentially gave him the right to to govern them and they surrendered um, there and, and they submitted to his will ultimately. There's also this concept of shura, which is consultation in the Islamic tradition, which is about the leader looking to people of expertise within the community and other community leaders and local representatives for advice and, and for input on how different things should be uh, run in the state. And these two things really point to the fact that the leader of the Muslims should be established through some kind of designation or election in the community. This is how authority ultimately comes to be legitimate. And really, for me, I think it shows the very communal nature of Islam. Again, this is not about authoritarianism or just one person seeking to control and dominate over everything else. This is a very functional role. And I think that this is, again, emphasised when you look at the literature, when they talk about how the Khilafah does fulfil the functions of leadership and avoids anarchy. When we know the hadith that Muhammad said that there's, if, if there are three people uh, going on a journey, one of you should be appointed an imam. But Ibn Taymiyyah actually extrapolates from that and, he's, and he highlights that if leadership is emphasised here on a somewhat basic level, what about on a broader level when you're talking about societal governance? Um, and then, of course, there are certain specific roles as well that the Khalif is supposed to carry out. So the 11th century scholar uh, Abu Mansur al-Baghdadi, he lists the role of the Khalif as the person who's, who would appoint judges and ministers, who would mobilize armies to implement the hudud, to implement the, the, the punishments um, on criminals and give justice to the oppressed from the oppressors. And again, I think that last part is really significant. Because this is not just about control. All of these things are actually about service, about defence, about protection. When we read this topic from our own sources, really, I think the image that we get is it's much more about centering life around these Islamic ethics for the sake of justice, not for the sake of just complete control and domination, which is how it's presented by the media or in other literature today. I think that's, you know, that last point that you were mentioning, Aisha, that's like, that's key you know, to like the Khilafah enshrining all of these divine ethical principles of Islam. So, you know, oftentimes when we nowadays talk about Islam and this is what's great about it and look, it, you know, promotes, you know, rights for women and it like safeguards the orphan and it promotes, you know, feeding of the poor, etc. What's important to know is these things can only be made a reality when Islam as a totality with all of its structures are implemented. So it's, you know, it's legal structure, it's, you know, the social structure, you know, all of these different spheres of life when it's implemented as a governing body, as a leadership, that's when it works. That's when you see the beauty and the justice of Islam really shining through. And without it, you get this mm -hmm. sort of pick and mix bag that you get today, you know, in the in the Muslim majority countries, which doesn't really live up to that ideal of Islam and Islamic governance. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think when people first hear a definition of Khilafah and, you know, its requirements, it's almost alienating because, you know, where are we going to find a pious Qurayshi who excels in Ishtihad and has, like, great leadership skills in our age? And these are all requirements of the Imam. But also, when you have this kind of checklist, it can be kind of exploited by groups like ISIS to kind of derive legitimacy for themselves and, you know, associating their actions with the Islamic ideal. But, you know, this is why we need to focus, um, when focusing on the qualities of Khalif, we need to understand one of the core objectives of Khilafah 
uh, which is to ensure um, security and stability for the Muslims. And in our reality today, we it's very difficult for us to find someone who will meet the ideals. So then what happens next? And I think like this isn't a new question. This isn't a new problem just, you know, due to modernity. Uh, because Imam Joini has, someone who has most thoroughly examined the question surrounding the caliphate, um, has tried to find solutions for the possibility that, you know, there could be an absence of a khalif that meets the ideal. Uh, so he assesses his requirements based on what is best for the Muslims and what would cause most harm if absent. And for example, ishtihad, um, independent reason, you know, the ability to find a solution to a legal question using Quran and Sunnah. Uh, this is a requirement for the Imam and its absence could actually render him unable to fulfill his duties. So now what do we do if we don't have a candidate who, you know, has like good ishtihad abilities? Um, and you know, like, it's actually preferable to appoint a man who is weak in his ishtihad and letting him defer matters to scholars in the community than keeping the people without any political authority. Because this way the people's rights are still fulfilled and he's still, a- he's still able to um, lead them in the ways that he can. Um, and the people aren't left um, without any leadership, subhanAllah. And again, with matters of piety, you often hear arguments about you know, Ottoman Khalifs who drank alcohol or you know, did XYZ. Um, does this then disqualify them from the position of Khalifa? And obviously, I do want to say that um, piety is very important, and I don't want to undermine it. But you know, there will be there can be situations where people will not be up to scratch in terms of you know how pious they are. So then, um, Imam Juraini actually argues that if you have a void in leadership, and we have a candidate available who is a good leader, and he's able to fulfill the rights of the people and can promote righteousness on a whole, despite committing certain wrongful acts himself, he can be appointed imam. But you know, he does need to re- rectify shortcomings and make sure they keep um, they kept private and hidden. Uh, but this is solely due to his ability to ensure the safety and stability of the Muslims. Because piety alone, mashallah, whilst it's absolutely virtuous, does not necessarily make one a good leader. Um, and we have the hadith of Abu Dhar who actually asked the Prophet, you know, will you not appoint me as a leader? And the Prophet says, no, because you are weak and this is a position of public trust. And verily, on the Day of Judgment, um, it can only result in regret for you. And I think the example of Amr ibn al-As works really well here because he was only Muslim for a short time, but the Prophet still you know, appointed him leader to lead the battle, uh, to lead the Muslims in battle. And um, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he explains it really well actually in his um, book Siyasa Sharia, but um, he says, you know, whoever delegates a position to someone, whereas he sees someone else is more competent for the position, verily he has treated Allah and all the Muslims, subhanAllah. Because, you know, this is an imana, and this, whilst piety can benefit the man himself, it cannot ensure goodness for all his people. Whereas the man who has a deficiency in his piety, his transgressions may harm himself, and it can be rectified by Nasiha, but by virtue of his leadership skills, the people are still taking care of fulfilling the duty of a Khalifa. Uh, but I do want to add here though that this is only with regards to like very small shortcomings that can be hidden and rectified. And it is absolutely not allowed for an individual who is kind of like immersed in depravity and evil to be appointed Imam, uh, no matter how good of a leader he is and you know what kind of you know what level of ishtihad he has. Uh, but people do peddle this notion that you know we, we um, a ruler cannot be challenged or disobeyed purely by virtue of them being in a position of authority. However, you know there is no legitimacy behind a ruler who is immoral and you know insolent. Um, and I think people need to remember this sometimes when commenting on things that are happening in the world right now. And I also think that people need to look. At, you know, people look at the situation of Muslims in the world and almost fall into like a defeatist mindset because you know Muslims are doing this or you know Muslims are lacking um, in X Y Z. Uh, you know, Muslims can't even wake up for Fajr, you know, so how are they going to establish Khilafah? But, you know, it's like, of course, it's all valid points, but, you know, um, establishing Khilafah is not dependent upon the masses. 
and you know we don't need all muslims to be at a certain level and you know actually, it's actually funny because maybe it's because of our lack of a khilafah that we don't have people praying for because you know it's a double-edged sword i guess but the key principle is competency and you know okay shura is a consultation with like um wise and knowledgeable people who can bring one closer to like uh justice and the truth and people who are most capable of ensuring what is best for the community and you know that isn't all people not all people know what is best for uh, the community and it's not about hearing the voice of the masses and representing them all because they they may not know it doesn't matter how well-intentioned they are how good-natured they are that doesn't make them capable of this position and this is why you leave it for the people who are wise and knowledgeable because they are more suited for this function and I guess this can you know, undermine some values of democracy. But this is why it's important to understand that the central role of Khilafah is ensuring the safety and stability of Muslims. And that whilst you know, some of the conditions uh, of an ideal Khalif were not always met, historically the institution has always remained. What really stands out for me in the last few points that you guys just made is that the Khilafah is not this like symbolic office that's just fulfilled for the sake of us being able to say that it exists and just to fulfill again this like technical rote obligation but rather that the khilafa is very much functional the khalifa and his government fulfilled all those functions that you listed Aisha H and also um when the khalifa ful- fails to fulfill some of those functions it is the responsibility of you know other scholars and leaders within the community and also the the ummah at large to hold him accountable and to like collectively ensure that islam as a system is being implemented, that justice is being fulfilled. And I think evidence for that lies in, for example, the very famous hadith on khuruj al-hakam or um, the hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that talks about, you know, not um, rebelling against leaders except in, you know, this like really limited situation where, um, you know, the hadith itself kind of like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the Prophet ﷺ says to um, like obey your leader so long as they establish salah amongst you. Um, and here establishing salah, What's interesting is also like the way that scholars interpret this as not just salah as in like five times a day prayer, but this is being used as kind of like um, representative of deen. So establishing deen amongst you. But I also remember mm-hmm. um, Dr. Mm-hmm. Overmir Anjum, who's a really good resource also in English for anybody who wants to like read more about Islamic governance. I really recommend that you look him up in his books. Um, but Dr. Anjum was explaining this idea of like, he, he was explaining what does it mean to establish salah and what are the requirements of establishing salah. And he was like, okay, well, first of all, you need to have knowledge of how salah is performed. Okay, so there needs to be scholarship um, in order to, you know, for us to even know how to perform salah. Scholarship needs to be produced through like networks and systems and institutions of knowledge. So that is required. Also, establishing salah, it, it's also required to do it in the masjid, right? We all have our five daily prayers, but also um, men especially are encouraged to perform some of those daily prayers in the masjid and they're required to perform Jum'ah in the masjid. So then the implementation of masjid is a requirement. Um, what, what, is the, what are the requirements of a masjid? It can't just be any building. There are specific, you know, like technical requirements. And then there's um, like the requirements of Jum'ah and what it means to have a jama', like a central place that the community meets in to pray Jum'ah. And all of these things, you know, are like, you can add so many things that are tied to just that requirement of establishing the salah. So again, it's not just about, you know, like this like symbolic, we have a Muslim leader, we call him the Khalifa, and that means that Khilafa exists, but rather like the preservation of deen and the upholding of deen and the establishment of salah, it requires like this whole broader system that is very much functional. It should serve certain functions. And also the like very real historical fact of certain Khulafa having been 
um, having made like huge mistakes, not just small mistakes, um, and you know, having failed to fulfill some of those functions, that does not disqualify us from ever like needing to continue to articulate an ideal. So the fact that in reality, Muslims and human beings make mistakes doesn't mean that we stop um, you know, articulating and really promoting what the ideal function of the Khilafah is. Um, but it just requires recognizing that, okay, we have this ideal in practice. It's going to require like continuous work and accountability on behalf of the, the you know, the entire Ummah to like allow the system to continue to run as it's intended to run and as it's, you know, intended to actually protect the deen of people and protect the, you know, the worldly affairs of people. And I hope that this proves also that this whole discussion and this whole concept of Islamic governance is not purely theoretical. Because I think that that's a common accusation when people start talking about Islam and politics that, you know, people throw around this like this argument that it's like, okay, well, you're focused so much on like these theoretical faraway ideas. You should be focused on like the practical and stuff that you'll actually be held accountable for on the day of judgment and whatever. But no, this is, you know, evidence for the fact that the this is very much a practical matter that like the physical safety and security of Muslims, as well as the deen and the iman of Muslims, these are things that Khilafah and Islamic governance Ha, like the purpose of Islamic governance is to preserve those things. And we can see very clearly by looking at the state of the Ummah today, where we see like not in one place, but in multiple places where a literal genocide is taking place against Muslims, where Muslims everywhere lack political self-determination, um, even though, you know, we've like, yeah, so we've like formally decolonized, but Muslims don't really have, you know, like we don't really have independence, much less independence to establish Islam as it was intended. And we not only do are we witnessing like all of these crises, but we feel so powerless and helpless to do anything about them. Um, and that should strike a chord with Muslims everywhere that it's not enough to just say that the ummah is a body and that one one part of it hurts. We all feel the pain. It's feeling that pain should, you know, then inspire us to do something about it. It's not enough to just sympathize with people and say oh i feel bad for you but then when somebody complains to you about their about their pain how do you alleviate it and we should see that as a responsibility upon us and as you know we should think about like okay practically speaking how do we alleviate that pain and i think that that you know that should lead us to discussions about political self-determination for muslims um, and implementing islam as a way of life and as a as a political system so Considering the importance of the Khilafah, not again, just as like something that's symbolic or emotional or nostalgic, but as something that serves a certain function, I want to now turn to our resident TKP historian to tell us a bit about um, not just the history of the Khilafah, but also specifically um, the event of the like abolishment of the Ottoman Khilafah and what took place. Why did, you know, like what led to Muslims then like abolishing the system and like kind of like losing a hold of Islamic governance and also what did this mean for Muslims? SubhanAllah, so the 3rd of March 1924 marks maybe one of the most, you know, darkest of chapters in Islamic history, um, the fall of the Khilafah, which was the most central institution of the Muslim Ummah. And uh, at the time, the Khilafah was in the hand of the Ottomans, which was one of the most, you know, powerful and largest um, empires. And at its greatest height, actually, you know, it covered Anatolia, the Balkans and much of the Middle East and North Africa too. And you know, they had like a very super strong organized military and a centralized political structure that allowed for this expansionism and also allowed for one of the greatest events in Islamic history, in my opinion at least, which was the liberation of Constantinople, alhamdulillah. But you know, like the arts and you know, trade and architecture, everything was thriving and the spirit of Islam was strong. You know, it was the foundation of the governance and there were numerous scholars who were like really highly regarded and influential. And madrasas, you know, dominated the social lives of Muslims, which, you know, is just evidence of how Islam was interwoven into Ottoman rule. 
And it was on these grounds that they established the empire and also on these grounds that they did try to defend it um, in the 20th century when the caliphate did fall. And you know, there are so many nuances and details that studying the actual fall of the Khilafah is almost a science in itself, but you know, there are a few points to emphasize. Um, like to start off, there was internal decay in this glorious empire because you know, there was mismanagement of economic affairs and resources and almost like underestimating the growing powers surrounding them, which you know kind of caused a stagnation in their own development. And externally, the impact of colonialism in the Muslim world with like the British and the French and you know the damage of World War One kind of left the Ottoman Empire like broken and divided. But it was actually at the hands of Mustafa Kemal, who was one of their own, and uh, someone with like very nationalist interests. Uh, you know, the final Khalifa of Islam, Abdul Majid II, was actually forced to flee his position um, into exile, and you know, the office of Khilafah was officially abolished. Uh, but you know, it's only when we realise what the loss of this institution entails can we really comprehend how tragic this event was. Uh, because you know, people are mourning its fall from like India to Yemen, and you know, it affected the lives of Muslims all around the world. And if you're wondering why Muslims from the you know from the subcontinent have such a fascination with Eritrea, like it goes way back. Like you know, in the early nineties, there was actually a Khilafat movement where the Indian Muslims were rallying um, to give back political authority for the Ottoman Caliph. So much like these people have been on it, <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Uh, but you know, what is now known as Turkey was essentially the center of the Caliphate, but it was transformed from an Islamic nation to a modern secular state that, where the policies of Kemalism kind of altered every aspect of life because he. Um, he banned the Ottoman affairs and the hijab. He outlawed the Adhan from being called um, in Arabic. And, you know, secularism, secularism was essentially like written into the constitution. Just bearing in mind that the past 600 years, this land has been governed by a khalif, you know, even if it's just symbolically. But, you know, sacred law was its foundation. And I guess the most hard-hitting loss for Muslims around the world was the fact that, you know, we lost an institution that was put into place by our beloved Rasul. And you know, this was our connection to the Prophet himself. And, you know, Muslims were left not only leaders in the political sense, but also because they had lost this divine connection. And this is pretty much unprecedented. Like, you know, we make memes, but the people back then were a bit more sophisticated. And, you know, they were writing elegies and very deep emotive poetry where, because you know, for many of them, there were very real eschatological undertones. Because this was like a sign of Qiyamah for them, because being without a Khalif is almost unimaginable. And, like, even in practice, if the Khilafah had deviated, it still undergirded their entire life and shaped their culture. And this was their connection to the Prophet. It was a divine blessing upon them. And now without it, it essentially symbolized doom. And I think only once before had the Khilafah actually fallen. And this was after the Mongol invasion of Baghdad. And it was quickly reinstated in Cairo. But that interim period without a Khalif was regarded as one of like the most tragic of events. And you know, scholars like Ibn Wasil actually said that you know, Islam had never been afflicted by a greater calamity than the Mongol invasion. And the sentiment was absolutely mirrored in 1924 as well at the fall, uh, at the fall of the Ottoman Caliphate uh, when the Sheikh al-Islam Mustafa Sabri, he like evoked such vivid imagery um, in his critique when he said like the two souls of um, atheism and nationalism had slaughtered the Ottoman Caliphate. And you know like, we need to look at what we actually lost and it gave way for like wars and political and economic instability, poverty around the Muslim world and you know even apostasy subhanAllah. And like the Muslim world was carved up through the Sykes-Picot um, agreement and you know Palestine, we lost Palestine, subhanAllah. And this is the same Palestine that Abdul um, Sultan Abdul Hamid II said that he would not sell one inch of it because it was not his to sell, rather it belonged to the Ummah. Um so you know this is our reality now without having a khalif and a caliphate. And actually Imam Sukhi wrote after the Mongol invasion that um his reflection was actually to perpetuate a collective mourning for the Muslim community, that the prospect of being without a khalif should fill us all with so much dread. 
And you know, there are examples of scholarly work starting with like this year past with the Muslims having no khalif, subhanAllah. And look at, you know, a hundred years later, we are in a position that they saw as the most tragic and, you know, awful of situations. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a lot more to say on this and, you know, there's a lot of complexities. But um, I guess I'd recommend Dr. Mona Hassan's book, Longing for the Lost Caliphate, because it does provide a cursory overview of Islamic political theory. But, you know, it also highlights the aftermath um, of the abolished um, caliphates. But uh, oh, actually, also Dr. Yaqub Ahmed, mashallah, who specialised in late Ottoman history. And mashallah, he is so passionate about this. Um, and he has some brilliant insights into the fall of Khilafah specifically. So, yeah, I definitely um, recommend him. Yeah, I'd really agree with Amina there. I think that Mona Hassan's uh, Longing for the Lost Caliphate, I'm only part of the way through it, but so far, how, what I've read of it, I've really, really loved. MashaAllah, may Allah reward her. Um, it's, it, it's really good, I think, on just summarising not just what, the, well, what this is in history and yeah giving examples and contextualizing it a bit for people who think this may all seem very abstract but also about actually recognizing the trauma that many people felt when this system was abolished um it's a very interesting seeing the, the the symbolic power that it held to people who as amina was saying didn't even live under its borders but still were so emotional and devastated at its its loss i think it says a lot about what its significance is being representative of us as an ummah and uh, and islam and it's interesting actually last week when i was kind of scrolling through my facebook i actually came across somebody uh one of these facebook pages that had shared actually um a picture the from, from a london newspaper it was called the muslim standard from 1922 which was essentially pledging allegiance upon the ascension of the final khalif abdul majid it literally you know it's, it's got this it's, it's got his picture on the front page and it says he's the 98th khalifa from the time of the prophet and they essentially pay homage to him and they say that you know you are the the, the leader of the 400 million muslims at the time and you know they basically make dua for allah to safeguard his honor and his integrity and this is from london you know this is muslims in london putting this on their national newspaper because even though they're british citizens they realize the affinity and the loyalty that they have to him as as the leader of the muslims and so i thought that that was just a great example of really how strong this attachment was uh, and i'd also say that i think a lot of the trauma of that time remains very unresolved uh, not just for muslims kind of around the world but even just subconsciously within our psyche we often talk about muslims having like a victim complex or muslims you know feeling the need to put people down in sort of in muslim countries you see this a lot of time muslims in the west talking about how bad muslims are back home it's almost because they feel like you know there's there's no strong muslim state to point to anymore there's nothing to take pride in or take honor in or say that that is an honest representation of islam and so instead people resort to kind of self-hating essentially and i think that once we carve out a space for us to speak a little bit more openly about that trauma and about what can resolve it we'd actually see some more productive conversations happening yeah, subhanAllah, like it, I remember you showing me that picture of the newspaper and it was just, it, I don't know, it's it's so interesting to try to conceptualize this different like Muslim political imaginary that just existed throughout the ummah, um, even yeah, mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of the jurisdiction of the Muslim lands. Um, but now, a hundred years after that, you know, we're a hundred hijri years on from the abolishment of the Khilafah. Um, how would you say this concept and, you know, especially like the, I think the terminology is what um Mm -hmm. you know sometimes people can be allergic to but how is it perceived today amongst muslims 
I feel like many people are disconnected from the concept of Hilafah because they feel like it doesn't actually involve them rather, you know, it's relevant to like a small group of academics and, you know, ISIS essentially. But, you know, that's a tragedy because Hilafah was an institution that penetrated through the hearts of like all Muslims, be it scholar, politician, just like the average layperson. And, you know, with regards to academia, that's where like a lot of talk of Hilafah actually happens. There are some who undermine the historical significance and do try to downplay its influence in society. Um, you know, that the Russians won after, after the Russian Caliphate, it actually became like a very hollow and corrupt institution. Uh, but, you know, I can appreciate the romanticization of Khilafah, and a lot of Muslims do romanticize it. Well, I mean, you need to actually check that romanticization because people will be a bit disappointed. Uh, but, you know, especially after, you know, later caliphates were far from the ideal. But what they symbolized was still regarded very highly throughout the Ummah. And this is apparent on both the after the Mongol invasion and the fall of the Ottoman Caliphate. And so in prep for this episode, I did ask a few people what the caliphate meant to them. And, you know, after hesitating, it was, it was always the same answer, which is ISIS. And, you know, it's literally taken over the whole discourse to the point that, you know, there can be very serious consequences with, with like, organisations like Prevent, um, which contributes not only to the censorship of the concept, but also our ignorance of the concept. And, you know, like, scholars of the past would, you know, they would write treaties and speak on the Khilafah in their weekly sermons. And the people were very well aware of the concept as a whole. But, you know, when was the last sermon we had that spoke of Khilafah? You know, and with reason too, because there are very real fears, like, you know, like Guantanamo exists in Hamla. Uh, but, you know, there was a Yaqeen article published about a year or so ago, and there was an academic who wrote a critique, and when he tweeted it, he tagged national security officials as well, subhanAllah. And this is literally, like, the nature of this concept, and this is how, you know, people... It's in this um, it's in this paradigm that people will approach um, Khilafah. Uh, but, you know, like, I do make jokes sometimes that we need to reclaim our language and you know, our religion. But, you know, the, the inability to talk about Hilaf outside the context of ISIS and just losing the ability to call something by its name is truly a tragedy. Because, you know, we can afford to not speak about it because, you know, we are living very comfortably in the West. But you know, that is not the case for many Muslims who are oppressed and who are living under dictatorships and, you know, are relying on a Hilafah to liberate them. And, you know, I'll mention the Kashmir specifically because I've noticed they always call Khilafah. And they don't call for the Ummah or like, like a pan-Muslim, you know, unity. Um, they call for Khilafah to liberate them. And it's literally written on their walls. That's part of their movement. And, you know, when I say the Tawakkul and the faith they have in the institution, I feel so embarrassed because, you know, our unwillingness to then speak of Khilafah is partly due to the, pri- the privileges we have. And, you know, we demote this idea of Khilafah to a very, like, mythological status, you know, that... Um, you know, it's unfeasible and, you know, maybe like even undesirable at this point. And then you even have Muslims who resort to labeling you things like, you know, Ikhwani or Hizbi and like not to be like dense, but, you know, I understand the obstacles that um, are in our way and how Khilafah is not the only issue and probably is the least feasible at this time as well. But I just wish some people had, you know, the same faith and optimism in Khilafah that they show democracy, you know, which is seen as a favorable mode of governance, despite many people still suffering under this shade of democracy, subhanAllah. Yeah, and as we can see today, um, democracy is not all that great. <laughs> it really, really isn't. But I think this reluctance to talk about Khilafah in particular, I think it's also almost like a colonial souvenir that we've kept. You know, after, you know, Britain and France came and ransacked our lands, um, we 
since then have, you know, they've erased our Islamic history to the point where we are barely conscious of it. Like Muslims nowadays are so out of touch with their Islamic history. Um, and I like fully include myself in that number up until very recently, because you just, you know, there's like a whole blank. I learned about Henry VIII and I didn't learn anything about this <laughs> Muslims beyond, you know, Muhammad and, you know, maybe some of the, you know, the four Khulafa after him, but that was it. And then there was like this huge, like chasm of Islamic history that I have nothing, I have no idea about. And then you hear whispers of like an Islamic golden age and it's like, oh, well, the Muslims popped up again. And like, you know, between here and now, they're like all these big, massive gaps. And it's like, well, but like, how did Islam come to India? And how did Islam come to like Malaysia and like spread to all these places? And like, you know, there was there was a mechanism, there was a machine that was pushing all of this. There was a whole Islamic, you know, there was a Khilafah that was, that existed that we've, you know, been just completely clueless about for a really long time. Um, and I think also more recently, you know, post 9-11 with this whole very Islamophobic, heavy propaganda that we see in, you know, global news outlets, basically pushing that anything related to Islam or classical Islam or traditional Islam is inherently, you know, violent or extremist or related to terrorism and anything relating to politics, you know, especially with ISIS, like Amina was mentioning, it's just, you know, really blacklisted the topic altogether. But, you know, it's, we should reclaim our history for that, you know, to jump on the bandwagon, but we should definitely, you know, re-familiarise ourselves with, you know, the Islamic legacy of what the Khilafah actually is and not you know, feed into what the Western media would like to vilify us as and, you know, the Prophet's legacy as well. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, knowing our history on our own terms is really, really important, um, as you've said. Um, and I think that sometimes we have that tendency to be just ashamed of it and kind of it's 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 not an appropriate conversation that we think we can have even in Muslim spaces because, alhamdulillah, I was raised with this idea as I was growing up and it was just a very much a... Uh, an intrinsic understanding that ultimately, you know, when we, we look at various aspects of Islam and when we think about the political aspect of Islam, it manifests through this institution called the Khilafah. But when I went out into other spaces, when I was sort of tried to speak about this idea in certain Muslim community events or even with just extended family, it was a shock because it was very much frowned upon that we should even discuss some of these things or that they should be on our minds and for me that was just uh, you know that kind of dissonance there led to a lot of confusion but I think that fundamentally we need to recognize that the existence of the idea of Khilafah really isn't controversial because it's in the history books you can go and you can study it at universities be it Islamic or secular and it's something that actually when you look at the scholarship on this you see that there is quite comprehensive agreement of all the different sects of Islam upon when it comes to this issue. I think it was Ibn Hazm who mentions that all of Ahl Sunnah, as well as even the Shia, as well as the Murji'ah, and all of the Khawarij except one sect among them, the Najdi sect, actually believe that the Khilafah is an obligation. So we really now don't need to be the other kind of sects of 21st century Muslims who are like, actually, we don't want to talk about this. This is a little bit too controversial for our tastes or we don't know how other people are going to perceive it. We can talk about it in a way and set the tone of that conversation, not be people who are just, you know, wary of how others will perceive us as a result of it. 
And um, Amina, you mentioned Kashmir as a place where, subhanAllah, people have absolutely not forgotten the significance of the Khilafah and not changed their desire for that over the years because of the occupation. I think the only other place where I can say that I have also seen that is you'll be happy to know our resident Salah Haddin fan is, um, is, is Palestine. And I mean, we hear a lot about Palestine, obviously, in, in, in the UK and in the West as very much, I think, a nationalist cause primarily, but also obviously an Islamic cause. There, there, I think there is that rhetoric there. But I never expected it to be as common as it was to really talk about the idea of Khilafah as just, of course, that's what we're aspiring for. Of course, that's the only thing that we really think is going to liberate us, as I did when I was there. And obviously, alhamdulillah, I was able to go in Ramadan. And it was the 27th night of Ramadan um, during Taraweeh that in the Jama'ah of, I think, something like 700,000 people, the Imam you know, blatantly made du'a for Khilafah to return and liberate Palestine. And everyone said, Ameen. And I was like wow, okay, <laughs> didn't expect that, <laughs> didn't expect that, you know, they weren't making du'a for a two-state solution or a one-state solution, which, you know, this is not a conversation about Palestine and, you know, the future of Palestinian politics, although we have done another podcast episode on that, but if they are not shy about articulating that as a vision, it really kind of frustrates me when we in the West, often sitting in comfort, very much are. Yeah, I think it's extremely significant that the Muslims who are still attached to this idea of Khilafah and who still see it as the solution for their their problems are the Muslims who are actually experiencing the consequences of a lack of political self-determination for Muslims. And mm-hmm. where you see Muslims are who are trying to, you know, kind of diminish the importance of talking about Islamic governance and diminish the, you know, even the like the idea of the obligation of Khilafah, who are the Muslims who are saying that? It's the ones who are, you know, like materially comfortable, the Muslims who don't really face, you know, don't suffer any material consequences of the lack of, you know, Islamic governance are the ones who yeah. are who like ironically enough accuse like the discussions about Islamic governance as obsession with dunya and obsession with material things. I'm like, yeah, you don't need to be obsessed with material things because you got it all. Like, why why would you be worried about, you know, like material conditions of anybody if you're straight Mm. chilling, like in the West or even in the Khalid, you know, where like in a lot, a lot of places all over the world where Muslims are not really, you know, they don't wake up and see like material suffering around them. And and that's the thing is also, like we said, the purpose of the Khilafah is not just ensuring the material well-being of people. It's also preserving the deen of people. And mm-hmm. I think Muslims who are living in like material comfort should not fool themselves into thinking that as long as, you know, I'm able to pray five times a day, as long as I'm able to wear my hijab and like do the kid in my home and call myself a Muslim that I've like, you know, that my deen is preserved. Because even the extent to which we're able to practice and talk about Islam in, mm-hmm. you know, like it, where we live in, in the West is still it's policed and determined by a non-muslim political entity and that like the like the amount of freedom of speech that we think we have it's not something that like we you know are able to determine for ourselves it's still externally policed for us so we even we shouldn't think like fool ourselves into thinking that like we haven't suffered any consequences you know of the lack of yeah political self-determination for muslims yeah absolutely and even if we collectively recognize the problems that like Muslims all over the world are facing, I think some people will still dispute whether like Khilafah, you know, is not only whether it would solve these problems, but whether it's necessary at all. So how do we explain, you know, like the necessity of the Khilafah? 
So I think that's a really important question because, uh, you know, oftentimes you hear a lot of Muslims saying, well, you know, uh, you know, who admittedly, you know, they feel for the struggles of our Muslim brothers and sisters across the world and they turn to things like the UN or democracy for solutions and answers. Um, and like you said, the question of is the Khilafah even necessary comes into play. And so as we do for every other aspect of our lives, um, we look to the Qur'an and Sunnah and the Ijma' al-Sahaba or the consensus of the Sahaba and what they did um, to, to guide us, essentially. And after the Prophet wasallam passed away, what did, the, what did the Sahaba do? We know when somebody passes away, the fard is to bury them as soon as possible, right? But in the case of the death when Muhammad wasallam died... The Sahaba, among which were, you know, Umar radiallahu anhu, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, you know, the most eminent Sahaba amongst them, um, they actually delayed the burial of the Prophet for two days and three nights until the next leader of the Muslims, the next Khalif, was chosen. So why did they do that? Um, and there's a consensus amongst many of the classical scholars, um, you know, Imam al-Shawkani, al-Juwaini, Qurtubi, Ibn Khaldun, that the importance of choosing Khalif was such that, you know, it outweighed the importance of burying the Prophet Now that should, you know, the, the significance of that should really strike us all because this was no just, you know, ordinary man, right? This was the Prophet um, who brought us our deen, basically, and who showed us how to be Muslims. But the fard of choosing a khalif was so important that they delayed the burial in order to decide who would be the next leader of the Muslims. Um, and we see this, um, you know, the, the necessity of having a khalif and a leader. The Prophet ﷺ actually, you know, foretold it during his lifetime. So Imam Ahmed narrated on the authority of Al-Numan ibn al-Bashir that Rasulullah said, Prophethood will last with you as long as Allah wants it to last. Then there will be Khilafah according to the method of prophethood and it will last for as long as Allah wishes. Then he will lift it if he wishes. Then there will be hereditary rule and it will last for as long as Allah wishes. Then he will lift it if he wishes. Then there will be an oppressive rule and it will last for as long as Allah wishes. Then he will lift it if he wishes. Then there will be Khilafah according to the method of prophethood. Then he, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, fell silent. So we can see, you know, at the end of this hadith, it says very explicitly, there will be khilafah according to the method of prophethood. This is not something we've just made up, a term or a phrase that we've coined and we've decided, hey, this will be cool to bring back. This is prophecy, you know, from the Prophet himself. And, you know, there are countless other commentary from the scholars throughout time um, emphasising how important having the Khilafah is, you know, to the point where sometimes it was it was such a given because they lived under it day in, day out. Um, and Imam Ghazali actually, you know, and he's written extensively on this topic. He, I'll just mention one quote where he says, it is clear that an executive authority, you know, a sultan or an imam or a, khila- a khalif is necessary for the organization of the dunya. And the organization of the dunya is necessary for the organization of the deen. And the organization of the deen is necessary for success in the hereafter. And that is the objective of the prophets without doubt. Therefore, the obligation of appointing an imam or a khalif is from the necessities of the sharia that, that simply cannot be left. 
So know this, that if the imama or the khilafa becomes void, so too the delegation of authority, the judges would dissolve and join the ranks of the people, proper legal disposal of rights with, the, with respect to life, blood, honour and wealth would be prevented, and application of the sharia would end in all these important matters. I mean, it just goes to show, right, he shows really beautifully the implication of being without the khilafa. Right. You wouldn't have you'd have lawlessness. You would have no implementation of, you know, justice, of legal rights, all of the things you see today. I think, you know, that statement is just is just so powerful. And it echoes obviously something that we have in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Maidad and rule between them by what Allah has revealed and do not follow their whims. And be aware that they may deviate you away from some part of what Allah has revealed. So literally that warning is there, like literally be careful if people could deviate from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given as divine guidance. We need to as well kind of just take a step back and question for a minute. Are we saying that we know better in terms of what is a better form of political organization than what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us? Are we saying that we know better than our creator, how we should organize ourselves and what actually is going to be the most efficient and just and you know transparent form of government? We can't be saying that essentially. And, and ayahs like this and statements like that really hammer it home that this is us submitting ourselves to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of the day. Yeah, see, it's such an interesting statement from Imam Ghazali. And also, if I'm not mistaken, he was one of like, like a certain minority among scholars who not only emphasized the like obligation of the Khilafah, but went so far as to say that like, Islamic contracts and like, you know, even things like marriage contracts are void and like, you know, invalid without the existence mm. of, you know, like th- this Islamic political system and like a court system, which kind of protects the rights and like, you know, implementation of those contracts. That's, yeah, again, like, I'm not trying to say that that is like the opinion, but to say that to, I think it's so significant that somebody like Abu Hamid al-Ghazali would go so far as to say that in trying to state like the importance of the Khilafa and not just, again, the symbolic importance of it, but the function of it. Um, and I remember like we were talking about this earlier, Aisha, about how, um, you know, like Ibn Khaldun, for example, is almost in a way like depoliticized because even I like, you know, I haven't read much of him, but I, I know him as kind of like like a sociologist historian, but he actually has a lot of work on, you know, governance and like Imam Ghazali as well is like, where when is he painted ever as like a political theorist, even amongst Muslims? Yeah, like amongst like yeah, within yeah. Islamic discourse, mm. usually it's about like, you know, his like very like beautiful, wonderful work in the Ihya having to do with like Tazkiyah and stuff. But he talks about this in Ayyuh al-Walad. He goes so far as to say that, you know, um, like, you know, encouraging us to like be wary of scholars who are like in bed with politicians. Like there is no shortage of, you know, like discussion um, amongst classical scholars and amongst like, you know, these giants of our tradition about Islamic governance. There's no shortage of like, you know, like uh, there's no shortage of evidence in the Quran and in the Sunnah um, about political leadership and about political organization, about ruling by, you know, the the law and the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But how do Muslims reach a point where they think it doesn't exist, where they think that Islam doesn't say anything about politics or governance and that all it contains is, you know, these like vague prescriptions about like being just good, nice people. Um, And that that can, you know, like that can look different in different times and places because Islam is timeless. And it turns into this like, you know, this whole other conception of Islam as just like, 
I don't know, all, like this moral encouragement to just like be the best you can be wherever you're placed and not try to actually, you know, like, like not actually try to organize a system based on Islamic principles because we think that those principles don't exist or haven't been articulated. But it's not, again, that they don't, they haven't been articulated. But if you, if Muslims go long enough, you know, without a khilafah, if they go long enough living in, um, in political context where like maybe these things don't seem immediately relevant okay we stop talking about them and eventually we think that they don't exist um i and this is really dangerous because i remember i was asking my mom like in the lead up to this episode because personally i grew up with this like concept of khilafa referring to the khulafa rashidun like the rightly guided caliphs that succeed the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but i didn't have you know necessarily this broader conception of like islamic governance as this like a system um, and as something that continues after the Khulafat. I remember, like, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, I learned about, like, the Abbasids and the Umayyads as, like, Arab dynasties, mm. you know? And which is, like, not to say that they were, like, perfect Muslim leaders, but I didn't even think of them really, like, I didn't learn about them as, like, Khulafat who worked, like, you know. Islamic the, leadership. Yeah, and I didn't even think about that as, like, you know, continuing beyond them up until the Ottomans. It, like, after that, it was just kind of like, okay, Muslims ruling through different political systems that pop up throughout the world because like humanity progresses or something all, all types of like really messed mm. up assumptions throughout that that you know took years to interrogate and unpack but what was interesting is that like yeah i asked my mom i was like did you guys grow up with this conception of like khilafah being like the system of islamic government she's like yeah like we did and we actually thought that like <laughs> this, this, yeah no she thought we would she said that like we thought it would actually come back in Algeria with the Sahwa movement of like um like late seventies, mm-hmm. you know, with like Islamic awakening. Um and all and especially when, you know, like the the feast, like the Islamic Salvation Front, like won the, you know, like early nineties elections. Um, like she was like, we actually thought that the Islamic revolution was going to begin like in Algeria, that like an Islamic state was going to be established and that it would spread throughout the Muslim world. Um obviously that dream was crushed like in the nineties in Algeria, but I was like subhanallah like this is you know this is something that's like in the consciousness of muslims but see how that dream is crushed and then that consciousness starts to fade where it's not again that like we didn't you know we don't believe in these things but once we start to see them as like you know far away or unrealistic or irrelevant we stop talking about them and then we actually do start to think that they don't exist that these discussions don't exist in our tradition yeah absolutely so we don't want this conception and like you know this political imaginary to fade from the minds of muslims But if we are going to talk about then modern Muslims continuing to think about and talk about and envision Islamic governance, this brings up the question of, okay, what does it look like then to implement Islamic Mm -hmm. governance and to implement the Sharia as a system of rule um, today in our modern world? And do we have any examples of Muslim states who are doing this? Um, whether, you know, like, obviously we don't have, we don't know of anybody calling themselves a Khalifa today, besides like, you know, some jokers, but like, you know, (laughs) is there any example of like, or a model for Islamic governance in our modern period? So the short answer to that is no. Um, The longer answer is, you know, as we've, we've spent, you know, most of the first half of this episode defining, you know, a Khilafah is, uh, you know, the goal of Islamic politics and a Khilafah is to protect the deen and manage the affairs of the world as prescribed and legislated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? You rule by Allah's ahkam, right? By Allah's laws. That very simply is not being done anywhere in the world. And as somebody who's actually lived in one of these Muslim majority countries, the key difference between, you know, true Islamic governance and these Muslim majority countries is, you know, in Islamic governance, you rule by, you know, what Allah said you should rule by. That's what defines all of your laws. And that's the ultimate aim. 
in these Muslim majority countries, it's almost like this pick and mix bag of like a weird dance slash marriage between democracy and like certain Islamic rulings. So they will up, you know, they will they'll have a you know democratic government and they will vote on legalizing things that go, you know, they completely contradict, you know, Islamic laws and Islamic teachings, um, and you know, prescribe them as being great or whatever. Um, but then they will have things like, you know, Islamic marriage courts or like in inheritance laws and that sort of thing, which only apply to the Muslims. Um, and it doesn't really work because you've got. So, yes, you will have Eid as a public holiday, but you will have things like Malaysia and Indonesia rejecting Rohingya Muslims or Turkey closing the borders to Syrian refugees. Like, you know, these are not things where if they were truly leading by Islam, by Islamic principles, if they were truly um Khilafas, they wouldn't do that. Like if a Muslim person, if a Muslim brother or sister is running to you for refuge, you cannot, do not close your borders to them, right? You do not turn a blind eye if it doesn't, if it's not in keeping with your, you know, economic policy uh, policies or with your trade agreements, you know, with certain countries. You don't just continue trading with China and ignore the fact that they're actively committing genocide against your Muslim brothers and sisters, you know, the Uyghur Muslims. You j that's not part of your behaviour, right? Um, and again, like we said, you cannot... I mean, you can't take some of Allah's laws and be like, yeah, I'm going to do a bit of it, Allah, but I'm not going to do the rest of it. And like, yeah, I'm going to, this is fine. That's not okay. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah, coming off of that, I think when we think about any form of governance or statehood, it's not just the total sum of its parts, if that makes sense. So if you want an Islamic state, you just Islamicize everything about a state. You know, you just have everything the same, but with an Islamic hue. Nations are ultimately built on shared beliefs and more abstract concepts, like it is to do with sovereignty, citizenship, nationalism, even how we construe society, the relationship between different groups of people, how we understand power and hierarchy, how we organize our resources. This is ultimately what political and economic theory is based on, which forms the foundations of how we understand different forms of political organization, right? And Islam has wholly different conceptions of these ideas compared to how they are imagined mm. and implemented in the world today. And this has created a certain level of dissonance between what Islam talks about and what these Muslim majority nation states act upon that I think really none of them have really been able to coherently overcome. But I remember puzzling over this question as to, you know, what about Saudi Arabia? What about Iran? What about other Muslim countries uh, when I was young, particularly with Saudi Arabia, because I think several people in the UK really used to make out that these are the, uh, you know, this is the best Islamic state that we've got in, in the world right now. Um, the best Islamic country, the leaders actually call themselves guardian of the guardians of the Haramain. So even if they're not claiming that title of Khalif, they are claiming some kind of religious title, some religious symbolism. And so actually, I remember when I was like in college, I think I was uh, well, high school for the non-Brits listening. Um, I remember like Googling the, the Saudi constitution. Uh, and looking at, okay, if people are saying this is an Islamic state, what does their constitution say? What about it is looking Islamic? If they're implementing Islamic law, what, what is there to that? And it's interesting because with Saudi Arabia, as with many other states, including Egypt and Pakistan, what you very much find is that codified law tends to reflect Islamic fiqh. And that is often mentioned in the constitution. Although, to be honest, some aspects of that law, many would say, are influenced by cultural biases and a lot of misapplication. For example, Saudi Arabia's infamous driving ban. 
But other than that law being present and being stated to have been derived from Islamic fiqh or a certain madhab or the Quran and the Sunnah, there is little else that really anchors governance as Islamic. And I think, as Aisha has just been mentioning, this is very evident in foreign policy, where Islamic considerations completely go out of the window. Uh, but also, as someone from an economics background, I see this very much with regards to economics, where due to pressure and often willing compliance from Muslim states, you have variants of capitalism and previously socialism being implemented in these countries with little effort to really engage on how Islam guides economic management. Ultimately, what we see is that Islamic language is used to strengthen the allegiance of various populations to their nation state. Because very often the people in these countries, obviously they are Muslim, they have that love and that attachment towards Islam and they want to see that reflected on a state level. And you'll often hear like policymakers from these states, from these countries, they say that the reason they base certain laws on Islam is because it's the majority religion of their citizens. And some even, I've heard, you know, go as far as to argue that if that was to change, or if people don't want certain things applied in the future, they would reconsider it. So ultimately, this implementation of Islamic law is being justified as part of this overarching liberal choice framework. It's not about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sovereignty. So the political formations of these countries remain fundamentally secular, even if they have this kind of Islamic gloss over them. And in recent years, we've definitely seen in the case of countries like Saudi um, that they've been backpedaling on efforts they had made to make kind of their country's social norms, at least in line with some understanding of Islam. Uh, and now, to be honest, I don't think they are pretending in any way, shape or form to be representative of Islam or all Muslims when they are inviting. Which celebrity was it? Which singer to, to, to Riyadh? Lady Gaga, Nick- Rihanna went to Rihanna. Okay, I uh, didn't Nicki Minaj go as well. They all went. They, all they went. invited the whole. <laughs> it was a whole party. <laughs> so whether it's Saudi, Iran, or Brunei implementing these piecemeal efforts, I think we do need to kind of draw the line that this is not Islamic governance. I think most of the time as well, what we hear them implementing and what people generally make a big deal about is. Uh, their implementation of the hudud, right, of the punishments. And I think, to be honest, there's two things to be considered here. One, as you know, we just mentioned earlier, this is the responsibility of the khalif. So it's somewhat debatable as to whether they're at liberty to just kind of pick and choose what aspects they want to implement and be like, oh yeah, okay, we'll implement all of the punishments. Um, I think there's a question and there's a discussion to be had there. But secondly, the implementation of the punishment system in Islam can only really be consistent when other Islamic injunctions are being implemented simultaneously. And we see this actually in a statement of Umar where he infamously suspended the the penalty for theft, which as we know is cutting the hand of the thief, uh, during a time of famine during his reign. And he said that, you know, there's the hand is not going to be cut for theft when there is a when there are people in famine and there are people in hardship. So they're going to they're, they're steal in order to survive and, you know, just feed themselves. Anyway, the head doesn't apply to that people who steal when they're completely in need. But aside from that, Umar had the wisdom and the foresight of a leader to be able to see that when people's rights are not being met, when other things in the system, uh, when other obligations that the state has to provide for its citizens are not being fulfilled, it's unfair to just penalise people for something. And when we look at Muslim-majority countries in the world today where there are some Islamic laws being implemented and people kind of resist them, very often this resistance is happening in countries where the everyday culture and education systems in these countries is 
heavily mirroring and also aspirational towards the West, right? So the pop culture that people are consuming is not Islamic. It's not building their taqwa. The education that these people are getting is not, you know, really about the, uh, it's, it's not about Islamic governance, yeah? So it's really nonsensical to impose certain punishments on people when no or very little efforts are being made to actually embed the moral code from which these laws stem in the population. Yeah, that's why for me, I don't see it as surprising that we have countries like Tunisia, you know, there's been a backlash to Islamic based ruling and people are trying to get um, the, the, the rules regarding the unequal inheritance between men and women revoked. If you look at the history of that country, you'll see that for so long, governance and education has been very much secularized. And so Islam as the axiom upon which that state is allegedly even based or upon which some people would want to base it has not been has, has not taken root enough. And this is ultimately a contradiction within the nation state framework itself, because it's the state's authority that is emphasized above all else. So when religion can be instrumentalized to enhance and entrench the state's legitimacy, it is used. But where it's not present, it's not going to otherwise you know, give room for that or allow for that. This is very fundamentally different to Islamic governance, which, as we said, is based upon this idea of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sovereignty, of divine guidance being the source of our different forms of societal organization. And so we really need to, I think, make that distinction in our minds. But in answer to kind of your question, Sarah, a little bit more directly, in terms of whether then there is a model of Islamic governance, I personally would say that there is not a particular model. I would say there's a framework and there are these certain fundamental principles which form the cornerstone of what an Islamic state is supposed to be based on. While these foundational elements are agreed upon, the reason I refrain from using the term model is because I think that there isn't one version of the Khilafah that we can say is, is timelessly applicable. I think when you look even in history at how the different Khilafahs emerged, uh, they looked very different from an organisational perspective. Uh, and also when looking even at kind of the centres of power and things like that. Additionally, modernization brought a lot of changes, particularly during the Ottoman era. Some were for good, several were for bad, others were just, you know, the ijtihad of the scholars at that time. But essentially, when we think about Khilafah, I think we should put in as well, we should recognize for our own selves that this is not a static model that we're talking about taking us back to the 7th century, Khulafa Rashidun, Umar did this and this and this, therefore we can only do this and this and this. I actually would say that ultimately progress is built into this idea of the Khilafah because the fundamental axiom is about applying Islam to new and emerging realities. And as we were talking about earlier in terms of the requirements for a Khalifa Amin I was mentioning, you know, being able to conduct independent ijtihad, independent legal reasoning, that's, that's incredibly important. And even if the Khalifa himself isn't able to do that, the whole point is that you stimulate a vibrant scholarly tradition that ultimately is aimed at serving the needs of the people at the time. So there isn't a model of Islamic governance, but I don't think we need to think that that means Islam isn't good enough. I think that shows that Islam is actually even better than what we think, because ultimately it's got that foundation, but it's also allowing it to be dynamic and flexible and live up to the fact that this really is a deen for all time. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's in you know that's reflected in like all of the discussions that we have about like ikhtilaf and like difference of opinion and like 
um, like pluralism within Islam and amongst Muslims, it's always it comes back to the fact that there are foundational principles and there is some room for flexibility, but there are parameters and those parameters need to be set. You know, like they, they are clearly set, uh, maybe more clearly set when it comes to something like aqidah, like, you know, um, creedal beliefs. Um, that we can like very clearly delineate like what beliefs you have to have to be a Muslim. Um, and maybe it's like less clear when it comes to something like Khilafah and Islamic governance, just because, again, like we are living in a time period where a very exceptional time period where we lack a, a modern model of Islamic governance to then say, like, we, there's nothing that we can really point to right now and think about like, and have like a genuinely, you know, like a genuine discussion about like, is this Khilafah or not? Does this represent a model of Islamic governance or not? So it's, you know, we have a lot of work to do as modern Muslims to envision this in our time period and to try and implement it. Um, and if we do look at Muslims who are trying to engage in that intellectual effort and to think about um, and to actually like envision what would implementation um, of Khilafah and of the Sharia look like today, um, there it's not that there is no like contemporary literature, but I think it's important to note at least that um, you won't find as detailed contemporary literature on like Islamic governance as you will in like classical Siyasa Sharia literature. It's not like people are writing about Khilafah and like Islamic governance in the modern day while analyzing an existing attempt at it. Like we're still, yeah. you know, we're fighting against like centuries of not just physical colonization, but even mental colonization in the Muslim world um, and trying to, you know, like solve so many different problems at the same time. Um, and the more globalized the world becomes, we the like more we have to consider not just what we do internally, but how we protect ourselves from like external threats and, you know, foreign policy becomes more and more complex and a greater consideration when it comes to even thinking about like, okay, what do we do um, you know, like within our own jurisdiction. So even though, yeah, this contemporary literature does exist, um, there's still like a lot of work to be done. And I, I wish I could tell, you know, folks listening that like, go read this book and you'll know what Khilafah should look like today. Um, but those books still need to be written. And, you know, a lot of intellectual production needs to take place um, to articulate that. But what we do see, um, and especially I think the, the literature that's most relevant to us is, you know, people writing in like the post-colonial period or even in the decolonial period in the 20th century because um, now a lot of Muslim countries that were formerly colonized are achieving independence and there's a lot more scope now for Muslims to think about like, okay, we have political independence. How are we going to formulate our, our independent states now? And of course, Muslims are going to think about, okay, how do we, what does this look like from an Islamic standpoint? Um, but these Muslim countries are still inheriting you know, the like certain institutions and political models and they're inheriting the nation state from, you know, their like former colonizers. So it's not like we're like they're able to just like start from scratch and like implement Sharia. They are working within this broader context. But we do see a lot of Muslims also almost trying to reconcile between the modern nation state and Islam. Um, and it almost mm -hmm. turns into like a sort of apologetic where Muslims are trying to prove that like Islam can still work um, and it can still and trying to convince also like non-Muslims and trying to convince, you know, people that Islam fits within like the broader like popular political discourse that's happening globally about like liberal democracy and nation states and popular representation. Um, so you see folks like uh, Abu al-Ala Maududi or Rashid Rida um, being like two, you know, Examples of people who are writing about Islamic governance, never denying the like sovereignty of God, never denying that like Allah is the one who is the giver of law um, and who we are like in obedience to and who determines like what the Islamic state can and can't do and what it shouldn't shouldn't do. But they start also like making um, 
they start promoting this idea of popular sovereignty more than any classical Islamic political theorists did. Um, and this idea of popular sovereignty is really, you know, they try to pull like evidence for it from the fact that like Khilafa is something that belongs to all people and that all Muslims are responsible for implementing God's deen on this earth, which is true. Um, but then, you know, this is almost used as like evidence for the for Islamic democracy, because, you know, like all people have some form of like say in politics, all people should be participating in the political yeah. system. And so what does that look like? It looks like, you know, Western liberal democracy. Maududi and Lila would not go so far as to articulate it in the terms of Islamic democracy, but you have people like Rashid Ghanoushi who would, um, and who actually think that, you know, um, it's not that like the existing examples that we have of democracy today are Islamic, but that achieving Islamic governance can be done through a system of democracy. And as much as, you know, I think a lot of Muslims like would like to be attached to that idea because it solves so many of our problems, right? We can be Muslim and fit in with the world system and, you know, be respected by like, you know, the powers that be um, and not be invaded and like have somebody try to implement democracy for us or whatever. Um, but when it comes to, you know, trying to really understand the conflict, not just be between Islam and democracy, but between Islam and the nation state, um, a really good book is, of course, Wa'al-Halaqs, The Impossible State. Um, and as much as some Muslims would like to treat this book as gospel, it is not. Um, it is still very useful, though. And I think that there's like some analysis in this book that is really crucial um, for understanding why, when we're talking about Islamic mm -hmm. governance in the modern period, we can't just look at, you know, existing systems and take them for granted and try to, like, like superimpose Islam on them. And it, this is especially the case because... Um, as like what Halaq talks about, you know, the concept of sovereignty and what that means in the nation state. And for me, what the key is in Halaq's analysis is that the nation state exists for its own sake. And it has almost like this very circular logic where um, it, it, it exists, be it should exist because it does exist. And it like, or it claims sovereignty for itself um, instead of, you know, like for God. And so the, it, within the nation state, the highest end and the highest goal is its own preservation. It's the preservation of the nation state. And this is why it goes so far as to, you know, have um, to claim like a hegemony over coercive power, to claim a hegemony of violence, to um, see it as like very good and normal for people to die for the nation state. It, it, it almost becomes a god in that it claims the right to people's lives, to people's, um, you know, like allegiance to their education, to the way that they organize their families. Um, and this is, you know, I think that this is what Muslims really need to think about when it comes to, you know, trying to, again, reconcile for some reason, wanting to reconcile Islam with whatever, you know, the like liberal intellectual tradition um, is that there are some like foundational things that we can't sacrifice, which is, again, like divine sovereignty, the so sovereignty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but also the implications of that when it comes to human beings organizing themselves, that we can't just say, yeah, we ultimately believe in God, but God kind of like left it to us to organize ourselves in different ways. Because like, as Aisha said, like there's not, you know, um, this like very like explicit framework for Islamic governance that's articulated anywhere where it's like these are the departments and these are the offices and like these are all of the policies and like there's still creative work to be done by Muslims to envision that in our modern period but it should be done you know with like we should be the fish that recognize the water for what it is and recognize ourselves as living in this political system that you know like has a very specific like intellectual origin which is um, liberalism and now increasingly secularism yeah yeah, I think, I mean, I've heard a few criticisms of Halak's book. 
I'm not going to lie, mashallah, Sara, you're much more well-versed in this than I am. But one thing that really stuck with me in terms of his criticism of the nation state is the way in which he casts it as something that is actually metaphysical. Mm. Uh, it's beyond the physical. It is capable of overriding and rewriting history. And this is something that as somebody from an economics background, uh, I see very much when we think about pre-modern forms of economic organization, where when you read kind of economic literature, they'll talk very much about how, you know, transactions and, 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 and commerce was embedded into moral codes and societal interactions and how capitalism has fundamentally disembedded our economies from these societies. Oh, and this is what is leading. Yeah, Falani. <laughs> and this is what is leading to, you know, unstoppable commodification to the extent that now even our attention is being commodified as anybody who you know has watched that Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma can can testify to um, and this really was the result of obviously capitalism but it was the nation state that really institutionalized this and globalization and everything that we've seen in the in, in the post-colonial period has really made this the norm. So I think it's really important to understand that criticism because this is fundamentally why the nation state is a fundamental obstacle and cannot be co-opted into Islamic governance. Like you said, it's a nice kind of easy solution and it gives everybody the ability to say, yeah, you know, we're not against um, democracy and we believe in human rights and, you know, we can all agree with each other, but there's a room for cultural difference. But unfortunately, it's just not as simple as that. I think it's a valid concern amongst, you know, a lot of Muslims today who think about like, okay, what about pluralism, like under Islamic governance? Like, what about like mm-hmm. diversity of thought and diversity of religion? Um, and, you know, like, would that still be protected under Islamic governance? Or when you say you want to implement Sharia, like, what does that mean for, um, you know, like for people who just, you know, like disagree with like the like the dominant order or the or for, or for non-Muslims who don't even believe in the Sharia at all? Um, and in this concern, I think there is this like, underlying assumption that liberal democracy is pluralistic and that it protects ideological diversity and this is something that I think this is a huge misconception because like even as much as you know we criticize democracy I think it's also important to realize that even the like promoters of democracy cannot point to any example of democracy being perfectly implemented today like nowhere in the world do you have like true political representation for the public there's no democracy in the world where um, you know, we're like, we're, where money is not a factor and like coercive power is not a factor in like, you know, manufacturing consensus among the public and making people think that they, um, that what they believe and what they want out of the government has then been implemented because they voted for it. And instead, what we see today in these like self-proclaimed liberal democracies is not this open playground of ideas, but we see things like, um, you know, policing, whether or not people can even support things like BDS, whether people are allowed to like voice criticisms of Israel, whether people are identify as yeah, women, whether people are allowed to like identify as women and men and define gender, you know, like the only way that you can define it. Um, so instead, yeah. yeah, you see like, like this, you know, move towards the middle almost of like increased centrism, increased um, you know, like ideological, like uniformity. And of course, there's a reaction mm-hmm. to that too, right? There's people who are seeing this happening and then they revert to these like extremes and you see like right-wing populism, um, which is not to say that right-wing populism is just a result of this and that people are not like, you know, inherently racist and like tyrannical, but that like you, that there is a reaction taking place to, um, you know, like the liberalism kind of like exposing its own paradoxes. 
Um, without getting too much mm-hmm. into that, I'll just recommend that if, if anybody does want to read more into that, you can look at Patrick Deneen's book, um, Why Liberalism Failed. And he really talks about, yeah, like, again, the, the tenets that liberalism claims to be upholding, which is like, um, you know, freedom and like liberty and ideological diversity. It, its own logic doesn't allow for those things to come into to, for, for those things to exist under liberal governance. Um, and so mm-hmm. as much as, you know, like Muslims might be afraid of like what it means for us to say that like like Sharia should be implemented or that Khilafah should be instituted, um, to not think that like the alternative and like the the status quo is fulfilling those objectives of, you know, like ideological pluralism or like freedom of thought and freedom of speech and just like intellectualism in general. Um, so I don't think that, yeah, we have to be anxious about that as Muslims, but but instead to see Islam as, yes, the truth and like the one way of, um, you know, like living our lives according to what God, according to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded, but also look into Islamic history to see what it looked like for not just religious minorities to like live under Khilafah, because they weren't always minorities, like non-Muslims often existed like as a majority of the population under Islamic rule and under Islamic jurisdiction. And I also want to make it clear that like Muslims advocating for Islamic governance is not just them being reactionary. It's not just them seeing the hegemony of the West and thinking, we want something for ourselves. We want our own thing. We want to be different and like edgy or whatever. It's not just, you know, like this reaction and this like, um, again, it's not just a desire to become the new dictators, to become like this new world hegemony, but it's actually, um, you know, it's because of our belief in things like justice um, you know, as God defines it, as Allah defines, like the only one who can define it, who created us. It's the belief in these things and wanting to uphold these things for human beings across the world that pushes us to think about Islamic governance. It's not just being reactionary towards the West. You could say, I mean, just say it ties into our aqidah, right? Of belief in Allah as the creator and the all-knowing and the all-just, right? And Muslims, you know, these values are ingrained in our belief, and what better to manifest that justice and that and that um, safeguarding of human rights and animal rights and environmental rights um, other than implementing what Allah, the all-knowing, the all-just has prescribed. You know, he knows it best and he's told it to us best. Um, and like you said, it's not a reactionary thing. It's not something that, you know, we're just trying to one-up people on the world stage. It's out of genuine want for justice. Yeah, I think it's important for us to not only centering Islam in, in, in what we're talking about, but as you were saying, Sarah, about like just recognizing that the system that we live under, although it, it's kind of hard to think outside of the boundaries that have been imposed on us. When you've been told that you live in, you know, the best system, as good as it's going to mm. get in the world today, you find it really hard to think, OK, well, there should be an alternative because you've been told that this is the way it should be. And you only think about bettering yourself within that system, but ultimately you think that the system works, right? What we're talking about, though, is recognizing, I think you do need to recognize it on uh, on on this kind of philosophical level, like Halaq does and various other people have done, the, the, the contradictions even within these systems that we are under and how we need to recognize that actually, okay, if these contradictions are present, it may not be the best way for us to live our life. And then we link it into what Aisha was saying that, if we as Muslims have our aqidah and we have some the, the guidance of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us to do, then we should be able to look at Islam as an alternative. But I think that when, you know, kind of you, you talk about this, a lot of people get very just um, 
is there a word for like camera shy conversation shy perhaps uh about kind of this about having this vision because they immediately come to the idea that well this isn't realistic what you're talking about you know it's very nice to sit and intellectualize about all that islam has to offer us but the reality is that we live in a day and age where the world is very different to even what it was a hundred years ago and you talking about using islam to, to give us all of these solutions you know what how does that actually be meaningful to us? And I think that, you know, before kind of answering that query, I, I think it's a legitimate query to have. I think that when we look at what we understand governance to be now, it is very different from what we thought, from what pre-modern governance was definitely. And even in the past hundred years, what how governance has changed. Understanding um, the the, the relationships that have changed, even just population growth, for example, or urbanization as something that has fundamentally changed the way in which societies interact. In pre most pre-modern societies, the main way in which states had contact with the people they were ruling over was through coming around every year and taking taxes. Otherwise, that is, they, they didn't really, people didn't think much about, oh, the state, I'm going to go and ask the state for something, which is a far cry from what we have now, where people are heavily reliant upon the state for, be it their benefits or, you know, social welfare, hospitals, education, uh, and obviously then expressing their political voice. So I think we need to recognise that the world has changed. And this is not to say that Islam does not have those solutions. I think, as you said, we need to have that institutional creativity that whilst holding on to the core principles that Islam has given us, we recognise that we're living in this situation, we need answers. But we don't just kind of sit there with that, we go and we actually find them out. And, you know, subhanAllah, we have amazing skills in our communities from people in all different professions. And I know some people in differing fields, be it healthcare or war studies or law, who are very much like, I want to find out how Islam can be applicable in this day and age for in, for us as communities, perhaps in the West, perhaps in the Muslim world, but also in the hope that at some point when we do have political self-determination as Muslims, these studies and this research can be useful. And genuinely, I mean, I'm not trying to kind of make a call to action here, but I think that that is very, very necessary work. Um, but generally as well, you know, what everything you've been saying about the nation state Obviously, it really points to the need to look beyond that. And I think that in trying to do that, it's good to take a long view of history, right? That for many post-colonial states in the world, their participation in this nation-state system has only been around for about 70 years. A lot of states in Africa, for example, only got independence in the 1970s. So this is a very new phenomena actually when you think about the history of the world or even the history of the modern world. You know, we're talking about books from Imam Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah that were written, you know, 800 years ago, eight 900 years ago, and nation states have been around for less than 100 years in many parts of the world for many, for, for many present day countries. And as a student of kind of international development, this is something that has really struck me of late because obviously development studies as a field was something that emerged in the 1940s after the Second World War in order to raise the level of these newly independent states to the level of kind of the developed world, as it were. But they are very open about admitting that ultimately this system is extremely fragile. And there are fragile states where these borders have cut um, ethnicities and tribes apart. They have created land disputes. They've created divisions that are becoming so entrenched that really, unless everybody, every single 
individual, you know, tribe or national ethnicity or self-proclaimed community is going to be given a country. In many cases, it's not working. The, the the drive to establish everybody's loyalty to one nation and, and, and their allegiance to that nationality is failing in many regards. And so I think that if people within that system can admit that, we as Muslims have really every reason to, to, to think bigger and think about what alternative could be better. What system of governance could we as Muslims offer the world? And I feel like this is almost just aside from any of the kind of any of the evidences and the obligations and the functionality of it that we've mentioned thus far, just as Muslims, you know, we're supposed to be offering guidance to the world. The Quran came as a huda to mankind. And I really feel like we ought to be showing the world that for Muslims and non-Muslims, there is a system of political organization that could function better than what we have now. But ultimately, that can only be actualized if we really start to expand our political imaginations, which is why I think it really is important to have a vision. If people have a vision and take steps to actualize it and implement it, then with the guidance and tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then we should be confident that we can achieve some change. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking about the fragility of the nation state, because even in like development discourse and discourse of like democratization of the third world and whatever it's always this like the the idea is that these people just need to catch up and look at these we have these successful models of liberal democracy in the west and it's just a matter of the rest of the world implementing them but what is lost in all of that is that what you see and what you what looks like internal like political stability and peace and security within the United States is a result of the United States exporting all of its violence to another part of the mm-hmm. world. The U.S. is prosperous because it engages in a form of colonial extraction of economic resources from the rest of the world. It shapes the global economy in a way and it shapes even like the development project in a way that creates a global economy where the U.S. can get goods for cheap and sell things for higher prices. So this is what like, Absolutely. again, even what looks like, you know, an example of success in terms of like liberalism or democracy or the nation state, it only exists the way it does because it is like creating failures and creating corruption and destru- destruction and violence elsewhere. So I think this really like, it should underscore for everybody that we don't want to be, you know, like that this is not a model for us as Muslims to then just become yeah. the, like the next we don't we don't want to just like you know adopt this system um and accept its premises and and deny you know like the very clear contradictions um that exist mm-hmm. and Aisha you actually you said one other thing which is that you're not trying to make a call to action but I think more broadly we are trying to make a call to action and that we're trying to you know like not just think about again like our history or think about political theory but also then Mm -hmm. move towards talking about what do we do now so how do we start thinking about next steps for us as muslims who you know are thinking about islamic governance i mean i think yeah this is an important thing i'm just thinking back to the beginning of the podcast and like aisha's just got her second dose of the covid vaccine and i'm gonna went to the dentist and i was looking forward to the podcast and it's like okay what does all of what you say have to do with actually your day-to-day life um and those things that are part of all of our lives that's the reality but i don't think that we need to think that unless we are doing something like every single day of our lives or we have you know working for Khilafah as our job title or something like that, that we're not doing anything. Yeah. Ultimately, this is a multi-pronged effort that requires different kinds of actions in order to ultimately, I think what the aim should be is what was mentioned by many of us earlier in terms of expanding our political imaginations. Yeah. For that to happen, there needs to be people who know and understand Islam. 
uh, and can think about its relevance to the world and some of the challenges that we've got today. So that happens, first of all, obviously on an individual level, that we make sure that we're strengthening ourselves, strengthening our relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and trying to actually obey him in every aspect of our life, if we're going to talk about these kinds of, you know, big ideas and obeying Allah at this level. That obviously needs to happen. Then, of course, it needs to happen within our communities, wherever they are all over the world, that we are getting closer towards thinking of Islam as this guidance for all aspects of our life. Uh, and that starts, you know, in, in, in the, I don't want to say small things, because I don't see it as, as small. I think that they are all of... I don't want to at the same time say equal importance, but they are all of varying importance. Uh, and there's going to be people who dedicate themselves towards different things. There's going to be some people who dedicate themselves towards education of children, and that's important. There's going to be some people who dedicate themselves towards highlighting about a particular cause, about Palestine or Kashmir, that's important. There's going to be some people who, you know, think about what Islam has to say about medicine and how we understand medicine and the provision of healthcare, that's important. And I think that we need to recognize and i think perhaps part of the problem with certain movements that we've seen kind of since like you know the 20th century is that some people were like it's this way or the highway unless for example some groups were like we are doing dawah to bring people to islam like that's all we need unless we are educating people and educating children and setting up lots of schools that's all we need unless we're doing this kind of political work that's all we need we need to know accept that we need lots of things <laughs> ultimately uh this is just you know the way i see it but I think as well, sometimes people like to put this um, binary uh, where they're like, we can only focus on local issues or we can focus on global issues. This is a really damaging thought. But for me, the best kind of the best response that I can think of to it is um, last year, I was asked by a sister from Kashmir to do a talk on Islam and women's issues two women from Kashmir. It was the beginning of like COVID and everybody was, you know, doing stuff online. So, so she was like, okay, we're having a halaqa that we usually have in person, but it's online. So why don't you give it? So I gave this talk and subhanAllah, like it was such an eye opener for me because so many of the problems and the questions and the issues that these Muslim women were having in their community um, in relation to gender was very similar to the issues that we have here. Um, but at the same time, these were individuals who I know and you know, we spoke about it in brief in the event, but I know from conversations with them about other things, who wholly accept this idea of khilafah. And as, you know, I mean, I was saying earlier, this is something that's so popular in the consciousness, in the public consciousness of people in Kashmir. And I don't know, I just feel like, I don't understand why we as Muslims sometimes in the West have put this division on ourselves when other people in the rest of the world don't have that they're able to think about the problems that they have in their community with regard to gender and access to the masjid and how are we going to teach young girls Quran and all of these kinds of things whilst also acknowledging that you know we are living under occupation and there's also going to need to be a situation for that so I think that once we start stop thinking about these as two separate things we'll be able to make the connections between them a lot more and recognize that the things that people are doing can also be linked in to this broader strategy. I mean, bottom line is we are complicated bits of programming, right? We, <laughs> alhamdulillah, Allah has given us brains of human beings, not earthworms, right? I think we can handle talking about two different scales of issues at the same time without our heads exploding, right? Like I can worry about my local massage not having, you know, decent plumbing as well as worrying about, you know, the Uyghur Muslims in China undergoing genocide. And it's not, like everyone said, you know, it's the whole, you know, sort out your own household first and then, you know, worry about the rest of the world. It's like, no, no, you can do them both, right? And for me, 
you know, because we're talking about how huge or overwhelming this idea of Khilafah can be. Um, and, you know, I guess the take home is what can I do? You, like, like Aisha Hitch was saying, there are certain criteria for, for establishing Khilafah, for example, right? You can't just sit in your house and be like, right, that's it. I've got the caliphate. I'll be the khalif. We got it. You know, you need public opinion. You cannot, it's not a one man band kind of job. Um, and without this public sentiment and acceptance and acknowledgement that like, you know, amongst, you know, Muslims across the world, that yes, this is something we should strive for. This is an ideal. This is an obligation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This will ensure justice for all Muslims and safeguard us and prevent us from, you know, being oppressed in horrific ways across the world. Um, we need to make it a household discussion. We need to, we need to get rid of the taboo. Um, control our fear and speak with truth and certainty and conviction, right? Allah, uh, there's a hadith of if you see something wrong, or you know, change it with your hands. And if you can't do that, speak about it. And if you can't do that, then hate it in your heart. And that's the weakest of, of the three, right? People often have said, listen, you know, great, you're talking about it, but what's that going to do? That's not an action. Talking, okay, number one, talking is an action. So, boo you that doesn't that doesn't hold <laughs> and number two we've seen the impact in you know like the last i don't know five years and social media really took off in a huge way 10 years um the impact of having discussions and spreading these discussions in a big way the me too movement the black lives matter movement you know like these things they started as conversations and then they spread and like for example black lives matter that you know you've got huge thousands of people protesting across the world you're telling me conversations and discussions can't change the world i beg to differ I mean, if you want to, and if you want to talk about, you know, because obviously those those um, efforts, you could argue, well, they've not really changed things. People are still being, you know, oppressed or, or discriminated against. The women are still being, you know, murdered in the streets in, in the UK, etc. Um, but I mean, take a really simple, innocuous example then. Recycling, right? Like 100 years ago, nobody really cared about recycling. But now my government is saying, I have to separate my trash, otherwise I'll get in trouble or fined or whatever, right? Like, and that's policy. That's talking, ideas, public opinion, policy it works um and subhanallah just we need to as we do with everything that we do and undertake in our lives we need to tie it back to islam and and get our hope and our motivation for these things you know like i said number one the obligation that this is something this is a first kifaya on all of us to make sure it comes back we've got our love for our muslim brothers you know at home and across the muslim world we know how much we need this and how important it is to all of us and then finally we've got the prophecy from you know the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that this is coming right and sometimes it can feel so insurmountable like the challenges that we face in making this like a common household discussion um but we need to have faith and have tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, you know, we're fighting the good fight, guys. We're having the good discussions. This is what we need. Uh, also, I was going to say, um, I, I find that this discourse and this attitude lacks tawakkul so much. Because I was talking to my brother recently about, you know, something that was definitely not going to happen in Syria. And it couldn't happen. And there's no way it could happen. And my mum just came in. She's not political at all. But she just said, you know, why can it not happen? Like Allah is the Almighty, He can do everything, you know. So why, how can we have this attitude and say all these things with such certainty, not even try and put any effort into it because you know we know what's going to happen, but we really don't, and we are so small and insignificant in like the bigger sphere of things. So just you know, if we have this attitude that you know Allah is with us, He will guide us, He will help us, but we need to be the person or the people that make that first move. We need to put in that effort, tie the camel, and inshallah, you know anything can happen. 
and I'm very optimistic. And inshallah, you know, there's loads of there's so much in the history. So many good things have happened. You know, Salahuddin liberated Jerusalem. So you know, inshallah, by the will of Allah, if we do put in this effort, <laughs> it can happen. Inshallah. But all actually, Salahuddin. I mean, I mean, are you correct me on this? But ultimately, his victory was pay like it was his seniors who ultimately paved the way for his eventual victory exactly right nuruddin azinki right yes exactly yeah so when did this idea that you know if we if i don't achieve something then like it's then then it's not been worth it you need to again take the long view of history plant the seed now perhaps in generations to come people will be able to harvest that which you planted yeah and also like so many military like things in the past and just so many wars have been won when you have like a very small like you know even in like the rush dawn when all the wars they had there were so mm-hmm. many victories that you know they shouldn't have won there was no reason for them to win they were less powerful they had less weapons but they still did and that is by allah right and inshallah if we have this struggle you know inshallah anything can happen the Janan said it so beautifully in our last podcast actually um where you know we we have we categorize or we limit allah into like this is a big this is a big ask and this is a little ask. It's like getting, you know, a phone, this yeah. is a little ask for Allah and getting khilafah is like a big ask. When subhanAllah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's all little, right? He is all powerful. Yeah, it's all it, 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 you think Allah can't bring it about? <laughs> but like Amin said, we need to make our effort. We need to struggle and strive. Like even Maryam, عنها, when she was giving birth to Isa, you know, there's a, in the Quran, it says, you know, where she had to shake the tree, right? And you're thinking, imagine a pregnant woman about to give birth and he's like, shake the tree and you will get, you know, your, your providence and your sustenance. And she made that step and subhanAllah, look what happened, right? So we need to keep that in mind. Just to clarify as well, though, this isn't like a political manifesto on behalf yeah. of the project <laughs> that, you know, this is not like us trying to simplify a very complex problem into a little solution. But I think that we've talked a lot about the different branches of this topic, but ultimately it comes down to, okay, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. What can I do? What you can do is you can strengthen your connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can emphasize Islam as a guidance for you and your family and your community. And you can have tawakkul that ultimately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gives us victory and that we can think bigger than the constructs that have been imposed upon us uh, when we think about our political future. I'm not saying that that's enough, but that is something that we can all do. Yeah. And then in addition to that, you can educate yourself. So like read, you know, and that's thing is like even the, the things that we mentioned here, like we're constantly learning about these things. Um, and yeah, like, as Aisha said, it's not a political manifesto in the sense that like, even some of the, like the scholars that we've mentioned, it's not that they were all like, they had disagreements amongst themselves, but the benefit mm-hmm. of like seeing this vast literature is seeing like how many people were invested in this topic, even if they had slight disagreements, but they all saw it as something important as an obligation of the Ummah to implement it. But yeah, the extent to which this conversation has been, you know, expounded upon by Muslims of the past, not just scholars, but also like like, you know, like Amina said, like this was significant for Muslims at all levels, just shows, you know, the importance of learning more about it. So in addition to the things that Aisha H just mentioned, please educate yourself on like, not just, you know, like the like political theory, but also on the history of the Ummah, the history of like um, the Khilafah. And yeah, like what, what do your, you know, like your daily obligations are as a Muslim, make sure you fulfill those. Um, but I would say that like, what I want to see and what I recommend for Muslims is to like have this energy that like these sisters in front of me just exhibited, which is like, you know, I just I want Muslims to stop being insecure and to stop being so like scared and like weak and seeing themselves as like, you know, like these little mice that like, I hope the West is nice to me. Like, like we have Islam. Come on. Like, it's so fresh. And I, I hate 
dude, no, I can't stand like hearing Muslims talk about like saying things like politics is so difficult. Do you think you're going to change something in politics? Politics is so complex. And I hear them say this, not just in terms of like trying to disempower people from doing anything to like, you know, enact justice in the world, but even to like justify bad politics, like to justify the bad politics of like some, you know, person that they like, whether it's like a scholar or a politician or whatever, they'll say like, you don't understand what he or she is doing. Politics is so complex. How could we possibly understand the implications of their actions? One, if you don't know what you're doing, stop doing it. If politics is so complex that you can't understand it, you should not be involved in politics. Like prerequisite for doing something is to know what to do. Like this is, I don't even have to like pull out a language to explain <laughs> that. Like you have to know what you're doing to do the thing, okay? Like, you know what's more complex than politics? Like the study of hadith authentication. Yeah. <laughs> Muslims oh figured that out. Yeah, Muslims are not dumb. It's not like we have like a lack of intellectual capability. And also like, you know, guys were saying the tawfiq of Allah, like nothing trumps that. Like they're, the decree of Allah, the will of Allah, nothing trumps that. And to say that like, okay, look at the circumstances. What can we do about them? That's not what the Muslims said at Badr. They didn't stay, you know, like in their houses because they were like, we don't have the numbers. No, they said, we're fighting in the cause of Allah. Who can beat Allah? Like who can trump Allah's will? No one can. And so if we, first we have to, again, assure ourselves, am I actually understanding what Allah wants me to do? And that's why, again, always comes back to studying our deen and like being really solid in terms of our own practice and like our ibadah and everything. But once you're confident in that, asking Allah, like, uh, again, you know what? Everybody needs to go listen to the last episode with Ustada Junan about like talking to Allah and asking of Allah and having that relationship with him. Because again, seeing a better future for the ummah, it doesn't really depend on humans. It doesn't even depend on Muslims and their capabilities and whatever. If all power rests with Allah, all we have to do is recognize it. All we have to do is recognize that Allah can do it and ask him for it. And that's all Allah asks of us. Like that is, you know, the extent of the effort that we need to make is is in recognizing that power ultimately rests with him. But if Muslims can't even see that far, if they can't even have the political imagination to see that, you know, the West and the United States are like, you know, not all powerful, then, okay, you're almost, you know, like ascribing some like of the attributes of God to these like Western nation states and saying that like, okay, like God, you know, yeah, he did promise us these things and he did say that like, he'll help us if we help ourselves. But look at how powerful America is like, nah, dude, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense for like a Muslim to think that way. So I think that like a mindset shift is kind of like the starting point. And then again, like, yeah, the things that you guys mentioned. With that though, I will ask one last question. We wanted to inject some entertainment and talk about what jobs would we have after Khilafah is established and after the Islamic revolution takes place, what would our positions be? So ladies, (laughs) if you don't mind sharing. Uh, Okay, I mean, I'll go first, but mine is probably the most boring. You guys all had much more interesting ones than me. FYI, though, as well, this is a good idea, but this was a question on Twitter, right? And that had so many funny responses, but mine was one of the more boring responses, which is as somebody who, as I said, my field is development. I went into that field with the intention of thinking about how does Islam influence our understandings of development economically, socially, and what would that look like? for a future Muslim polity, inshallah. So I'd hope to be doing something to do with that. But actually, I would also like to, like I would envisage Qarween Project, inshallah, as also being like a part of, of that landscape. Aww. And I would like to make it like a waqf. Um, I'd, like, I'd like to make it a waqf, which would then inshallah be dedicated to just like the education and like 
a safe space for Muslim women and young girls to come and learn about Islam and chill and basically a real space for all of the stuff that we do online. Um, inshallah. inshallah. <laughs> One day, inshallah. Uh, for me, I was like, go big or go home, right? I mean, I could just be a Muslim doctor and a Muslim hospital and a Muslim land, but um, if I want to really, like, go for it, then Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Matt Hancock, move over, because... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I could oh, see that. Oh, my goodness. I could see I mean, that. Okay, yes, the... the um, what's it the responsibility would terrify me and the um the amount of it would be like mad heavy but like this is something I am mad passionate about and grinds my gears all the time no that's that's exciting and I completely see that you're a kind you've got that vibe of just like because you're very diplomatic Aisha I just see so much inequality and you know as a doctor there are so many times where you've got patients who either you know they're too unwell to look after themselves or they're in they're homeless for example and that that one breaks my heart like you know we've had patients who for example they got frostbite and lost both their feet because they were homeless because the the shelter that they had although they were under a blanket their feet were sticking outside you know their shelter and then and it was the you know it was the a period in time where it was snowing in the UK one of those those rare bursts of snow um and it's just it's so saddening right and I remember the patient distinctly the patient asked me well you know well uh, you know how can I make sure this never happens again and you know the awful facetious answer is well don't get cold again but you know you can see the social implications and the ills you know the problems that we have that led this man to being in the position he was and losing both his feet and subhanallah if I could impact that on a huge scale it would just oof, be my dream that's awesome oh it's really amazing like public health is yeah so crucial uh, okay, so I had two. I don't really, okay, I don't really know what this one, what this is called. To be fair, so I kind of want Muslims to be strong in every way they can, and I just want you know general well being and health of Muslims to be good. But you know, because Aisha A's already taken like the healthcare role. Um, I like I just want people to have like you know focus on their diet and their exercise because you know like if we ever do have like a Mongol invasion or something like that, we need to be ready because this collapse is not going to fall against Allah. My other one that I really really want to be is like a like like a storyteller but that just sounds so jobless but in like a more institutionalized way like you know like something like a poet laureate or something the official historian (laughs) yeah you know how there's like you know how like the u.s has like a library of congress like the khilafa would need like like official documentation of like history and stuff like that oh dang that sounds good (laughs) (laughs) but no you need to look at the reason why though because i want the people to come hear me every week after jumma like, like, you know, it's going to be like a very official thing. But this is because, you know, we forget, we think, you know, Khilafah was just kind of, the significance was just because of like, you know, the state officials and the higher ups. But it was the people who really, you know, made sure everyone was aware of, you know, what Khilafah was. No, mashallah. I can, again, see that, Amina. And it doesn't sound jobless. Okay, sorry, your turn. <laughs> no, um, okay, I have like my joke answer, which is head of the secret police. <laughs> you know, like definitely. You would be so answer. good at that. So good at that. I don't know. Okay, I've thought about this, and in terms of like, yeah, what I would want to do. I don't think it's any different from what I want to do now, which is that like I want to be an educator and like write books, but also like I, I don't know. I I've always had that interest in like you know yeah like you Aisha in like development economics and kind of, um, you know, envisioning like Islamic moral economy. Um, and I, I guess like, 
I would like to participate in designing cities that like help um, that are conducive to like the the not just the material well-being of people but also like the spiritual well-being of people and like really being able to connect these two things and not try to separate between like our material well-being and our our spiritual well-being i know it's like a completely yeah. vague amorphous like i love that no it's not city like, planning that's what it is i don't know I guess that sounds just, no, no, that's such a big thing, you know, seriously as well. When you're looking at the Muslim world, I mean, Cairo, it's so densely populated. Those are the kinds of solutions that urban planning, not just Cairo, like, you know, just generally. I'm saying that it's that's so, so relevant and so interesting as well. Like it's in terms of how design contributes on like a spiritual level and a metaphysical yeah. level. Amazing. This is also because to me, like, like uh, being a very visual person, I see the value in like, and that's the thing is like you could ask me this question like 20 different times and I can give so many different answers because on the one hand I would also like to support like Muslim artists in producing like beautiful architecture that isn't just yeah. like visually beautiful but is also very functional. So I think that yeah like being able to produce like physical spaces that you know where people can feel like the the sense that you get when you're in a masjid that is very peaceful and calming yeah. and beautiful and allows you to like connect with the divine and like the way that Islamic art itself is like Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I remember reading this chapter on art um, in, you know, uh, Ismail Farouqi's book on Tawheed? Tawheed and its implications mm-hmm. for thought and life. I remember this point that he makes where, yeah. like, um, a lot of Islamic art being kind of like these endless motifs rather than, like, a person in the center of a picture or, like, an animal in the center of a picture. It's kind of like, yeah. there's not, like, a one... It, it's almost like anti... Like, it doesn't allow us to create icons to then ascribe like divine attributes to. It's like anti-shit. He explains it much better than I can, but wow. it's so, yeah, I just think that like, I don't know, I would like the like no. spaces in the Muslim world to be, um, to accommodate for people, even like, you know, accommodate for people's like different physical abilities and like health yeah. um, conditions, yeah. but yeah, to also like make it physically beautiful. I don't know. I think Allah yeah. loves beauty. Oh, for so. sure. We ha- you have to go to the Alhambra. Sarah. Inshallah, yeah. When we go, inshallah, to Spain to visit the Achime sisters, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll take a stop there inshallah. because that is a prime example of that. Mm, inshallah, yeah. So I think we'll go ahead and end there. Um, thank you to everybody who listened up until this point and who, you know, humored us for, for like while we were talking about these things. And yeah, I guess I just hope that, um, you know, that people also start engaging in this discussion with us. If they're new to this or if they've, you know, been part of these discussions before, please share with us your own thoughts. Um, and if we've said anything that's incorrect, that's from us and Shaytan, and anything that is good is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah to accept it from us and to guide us and to increase us in the knowledge that we're lacking. We also wanted to mention that we're going to be publishing a related book list um, on Islamic governance and where you can start reading about, um, yeah, about the concept of like Islamic politics um, from a few different authors. It's de- not going to be a comprehensive overview of all the literature. And this episode itself was also not, you know, like a comprehensive overview of the topic. Um, yeah, we weren't able to go into detail about like all the various factors that come into the discussion or even all the, you know, the discourse that takes place about the issue. But we hope it was a helpful um, introduction and like expounding on some of those ideas that we find important. Um, but yeah, we hope that other people also engage in the conversation. Um, look out for more articles from the Qarawiyin Project on our website. This is our podcast, but most of our content is on qarawiyinproject.co. Um, keep up with us on social media. If you'd like to keep off of social media, but still keep up with our content, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we'll send you everything we've published that month and also any other recommendations from other publications or you know lectures or podcasts that we find 
uh, worth listening to or worth reading. Um, but Jazakumullah khairan, please keep us in your dua. And assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.